Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I enjoy a lot of aspects about this show. I enjoy uh, getting to talk with uh, callers. I enjoy getting to express my own view. It's funny, when we did the Get At Frank Hour the other day, there was more than one caller who I think correctly stated that I enjoy the sound of my own voice. Maybe that's true. Maybe I do. And uh, there's a lot of different things that I enjoy about doing this show. I mean, honestly, I can't imagine doing anything else. But one of the greatest joys that I've had in doing this show and do have on literally almost a daily basis is learning because we have had some of the greatest experts and sometimes I just learn from rank and file callers. But when it comes to various subject matter, whether we're talking soda or astronomy or the weather or politics or crime, I have really so enjoyed the conversations that I've gotten to have with experts that know a thing or two about a thing or two. And I almost feel like I've gotten a collegiate level education listening to this show, forgetting about the the fact that I get to be a part of it, Uh, just getting so many great questions answered to so many things that I'm curious about has been a real treat for me. Now, one of the people over the course of the last year or so that has provided so many of those answers is Steve Cates. He's also known as Dr. Sky. He's a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in both astronomy and space. He's a regular on this show. You might have heard him on Sunday on the Cats Roundtable, where he was uh, terrific as well. I always feel a little smarter whenever I get to spend an hour thinking and uh, talking about what's happening in the stars with Steve Kate. Steve, thanks, as always, for joining me on the radio. Well, good morning, Frank, and thank you for having me back on 77 WABC. Really enjoy it, and thank you so much. Uh, It is my pleasure. Believe me, I appreciate you being willing to uh, stay up this late. Now, uh, this week actually marks a pretty important anniversary in the history of space travel. It was 51 years ago today that Apollo 14, the eighth crewed mission to, um, you know, in the in the Apollo program. Yes. Uh, finished its its mission. And it was a really remarkable mission. Uh, Apollo 14 was uh, w- since we're looking back at what happened 51 years ago. What exactly happened on Apollo 14? Why was it such a big deal? 
Well, Frank, after the almost near to tragic and possible disaster with Apollo 13, there was a lot of pressure on NASA and the astronauts to recover and get the space program you know, back and give it a kick in the tail, as they say. But this particular crew, which I'm going to talk about, I spent a lot of time, and maybe some of the listeners out there had the opportunity to meet, and I hope they have, some of the moonwalkers, the original 12 that went to the moon. Sadly, only four are alive today. But I'll share that in just a moment, the time and experiences that I had with Dr. Edgar Mitchell. But this particular crew, three-man crew, Commander Alan Shepard, the first American in space, the command module pilot, Stuart Rusa, obviously Alan Shepard, the commander, and Stuart Rusa, and lunar module pilot Dr. Edgar Mitchell. They return energy and purpose, as we like to say, to this program after the near-tragic events of Apollo 13. But here's something I think is very interesting. I remember this as a boy back in the New York area watching television on a little black-and-white television, as many people did. But they collected 94 pounds of lunar rocks, and they conducted two of these very interesting EVAs, you know, where they would walk on the surface of the moon, probably a total of a little over nine hours and 23 minutes. And over the years, this is the part that I'm so fascinated about. I spent time with Dr. Edgar Mitchell, both at his home and in the various space events that we would attend around the country. But one of the things that I asked him, and I think this is so important to share with the listeners, I said, Dr. Mitchell, you and Alan Shepard were walking on the surface of the moon, and they were the last of these H missions, as they called them, to pull, I called it, a little luggage cart on the surface of the moon collecting these rocks. I said, did you have a chance to look up at the Earth? And this is fascinating, what he said to me, and he's passed on to the infinite a number of years ago. But what he said, Frank, is very simple. He said, we were so busy, we actually kind of got lost, and we had to get back to the lunar module. But when I looked up, and these are the words of Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the size of the Earth in the lunar sky is four times the size of what we see as a large full moon. Now, can you imagine that, Frank? And then he described it in even greater detail. He said you could see continents, clouds, and part of the Earth was in daylight, and the other part was in darkness, and you could see the vast cities, you know, humanity, or the lights of humanity on the surface of the Earth. But I thought that's quite interesting because here they were in this area called Fra Moro, some of the highlands of the moon. This is where the Apollo 13 was to go. But this goes back in the history books that this is such an amazing mission because they actually gave more impetus to the Apollo program when it was actually kind of fading in people's minds. Because remember, Frank, Apollo 11 got all the glory, Apollo 12 we heard about, and that was great. Apollo 13, the near disaster. But they did so much, and this was the most accurate landing, people need to know this, of the lunar module of all the Apollo programs. They almost hit the bullseye. Some of the other landers were off mark, but they landed successfully. But Frank, on February 9th, this date, 51 years ago, they safely returned to the Earth, and the rest is history. Quite an interesting story, don't you think? Yeah, I certainly do. I certainly do. Now, uh, you mentioned how, and I'm sure there was a lot of hesitance about continuing with the Apollo program after yeah. the, the problems with Apollo 13, and a lot of popular outcry to spend the resources that were being allocated to the space program elsewhere on domestic needs in America. That seems like there's always a battle for those sort of things. Uh, Just so folks understand, the historic Apollo 11 mission, which saw the first moon landing, was there much of a difference in technology between Apollo 11 and Apollo 14? Sometimes it seems with space travel, things move very quickly in terms of technological development, and other times it seems... They move at a snail's pace. How similar was the the actual vehicle 
that Apollo 14 was utilizing as compared to their predecessors that landed on the moon the first time? Well, that's a great question. And the answer is this. These were called the H missions, meaning that there were some things that they could carry onto the lunar module and some things they couldn't. But the real change, Frank, the real answer, the bottom line is Apollo 15, 16, and 17 really made the greatest strides in the ability of advanced, you know, new design. The, the lander looked pretty much the same. But the big difference between the Apollo 11, Apollo 12, and 13, and 14 when you got to the 15, 16, and 17, they carried the most amazing little vehicle that everybody knows out there was the lunar rover. And that was simply tucked onto the side or underneath. I don't know the exact dimensions. But that was incredible because if you jump to Apollo 15, I've had the privilege and honor, maybe some people too have had this honor, to talk to Dave Scott, one of the moonwalkers on Apollo 15. And they landed in an area near a big mountain called Mount Hadley, which is thousands and thousands of feet tall. And the point is, they actually got to run around in that rover, and they realized after a while that the steering, they had some difficulty with the steering. So the technology, Frank, in the later missions, the big change came. You know, Apollo 14 gave us the impetus to continue. They collected the moon rocks just like the other missions. But it was 15, 16, and 17 that carried more advanced, uh, you know, surface traversing uh, devices like the lunar rover. And actually, many people may not know this. There were slated to be an Apollo 18 and Apollo 19, and I even think there was to be an Apollo 20. But unfortunately, Hollywood made a crazy movie, I think, about one of them called Apollo 20, and it has nothing to do with the real science of the moon. <laughs> but it was a sci-fi gory picture. But imagine that. But the reason they stopped is because, seriously, the funding was running out. And unfortunately, America kind of lost the, the passion because people, you know, the average person on the street, you can't blame them. Some of them just said, you know, we did that before. Right, what do we right. Get Been there, done that. You know, another moon mission. Who cares? There you go. Right. Another right. one. When are we going to stop? Even some people said. But it was all based on budget. But a lot of the thing, and I know we're short on time on this one. Basically, a lot of the funding was to go into the future of the next generation of spacecraft. And that was the long-lived and also which had some tragedies, as we know, the American Space Shuttle Program. Uh, though, yeah, that that is for sure. And and now it looks like we are going back uh, to the moon as part of uh, as yes. part of the Artemis project, which is pretty exciting. It is very exciting, and hopefully, I think they're moving the date of the actual return this time, men and women, rightfully so, to go to the moon. Probably now. I mean, we were looking at maybe doing this by 2024, but I think, according to reliable sources that I talked to, we're probably looking, Frank, probably up to even 2028. Sad but true. We actually could do it very quickly, but that's a whole other story. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. We're going to give you an opportunity to ask questions about astronomy, about space, about the things that we're seeing in the night sky. If you have questions, we will do our best to have Dr. Sky answer them. Heaven knows I'm not going to be able to answer any of your questions, but uh, Steve certainly can. 800-848-9222. That's one 800 848-WABC. Now, there have been a lot of reports of uh, some recent sunspot activity. Before we get into what exactly sunspot, what the recent sunspot activity is, remind listeners, if you would, Steve, what exactly is a sunspot? Very good question, Frank. The surface of the sun that people shouldn't stare at is what they call the photosphere, thus the light sphere. The temperatures there, if you could go there, please don't, is about 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And again, the sun is this big fusion ball. It's not burning, it's fusion. 
And if we could do that here on the earth, could you imagine if you had a small suitcase, you could power almost half a city. But that's another thing that people are, you know, in the science world are doing. So a sunspot, when you see it, it looks dark because it's actually cooler and it's actually porous. So if you can imagine like a cloud or a fog, and my example is maybe not the best because fog isn't hot. But if you were to see some sort of a penetration into that fog, the deeper that goes in toward that photosphere, the cooler it gets. And these sunspots, Frank, on the average, they dwarf the size of the Earth, and around them are these areas which we call the inner parts called the umbra. Like in people who are in the art world know an umbra is a dark shadow. The outer shadow that you see, or the grayish area, is something called a penumbra. So in a three-dimensional model, you would see it as if you looked at, say you put a bowling ball on top of a trampoline, and you would see it slowly arcing down, like we're talking about bending space and time. But they're cooler areas in the sun's photosphere. And when they start to get other sunspots around them, they do this magnetic dance. And when this magnetic flux snaps, I'm keeping it simple, we get what's known as a solar flare, which then can force energy up through that photosphere, up and out from the solar corona, which is the atmosphere of the sun, not a breathable one. And the strangest thing, Frank, is that the corona of the sun is millions of degrees hot, while the surface of the sun is only 12,000 degrees. And when you get that snapping of a magnetic field and the you know, energy transmuting up through the uh, photosphere into the corona, you get what's going on right now. And we're calling these coronal mass ejections headed right toward the Earth. I mean, that is pretty neat, to say the least. Uh, 800-848-9222 if you have questions or uh, comments for Dr. Sky, Steve Cates. One of the, the it seems like sunspot activity gets blamed for everything. I've heard it blamed oh, yeah. for everything from obscure radio signals to uh, electric outages. Do suns? How much can sunspot activity actually affect life on Earth here? Well, Frank, there's something going on right now, and information is coming in, and people can go all over the internet and scour around and find this. There's so many stories. Space, you know, uh, SpaceX just launched another cluster or a constellation of satellites, the Skylink satellites. And what's just happened here, the Starlinks, what's just happened is apparently a number of these Starlink satellites got up into the atmosphere. They have this holding area of about like 130 miles above the Earth. So we're getting news right now. This story is developing. 80% of the 49 that were sent up have to be deorbited because of the solar you know, storm that's coming, this big CME. And what it does, it changes the pressure that's, say, up there in the lower part of the Earth's atmosphere. So when these Starlink satellites are up, let's say, at 130 miles, then they use these little ion thrusters on them. That's a whole technology thing in a show for itself. They move them to a higher level of, of above the Earth. And that area above the Earth with those Starlinks, they're going to be used for what? Internet communications around the globe. So what we're finding out is one of the most amazing things that's happening right now is that over the weekend, a gigantic prominence, meaning this big vein of gas, gigantic, the size of Jupiter, was sitting on the edge of the sun. Now, I have a solar telescope, and when you look at this, solar te- look at this thing through the solar telescope, Frank, it's this monstrous thing sitting on the side of the sun. That was one of the causes, among other things, of where the CME, CME came out. So it's a large sunspot group on the sun called Active Region 2939. It's a rather large sunspot. If people go to a website called spaceweather.com, you'll see the image of the sun live. And that sunspot 
is the precursor or, or the cause, I should say, of the CME that's actually going to hit the earth on the 10th of February, but it's, it's also hit a little early in some parts of the world. So that's made the uh, Starlink cluster that they sent up. They have to deorbit those satellites, and they're going to safely burn up in the atmosphere. But wow, what, what a loss financially for uh, something that the sun's doing to the earth, and that's mild. That is for sure. All right, we have the phone lines jammed with people that have questions for you, and I'm going to do something that's very difficult for me. I'm going to try and be quiet and allow them to ask you some questions. Uh, we're going to be back in just a moment. With a, We have a lot of other subjects to get to, some wild mysteries out of Antarctica, an update on the James Webb Space Telescope, and a whole bunch more, and your questions, of course, at 800 848 9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. You're hearing things. You're hearing things. On 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy, space, weather, wide variety of other areas. If if one hour of uh, Dr. Skydom is not enough for you, you could also check out the website ktar.com and check out the Dr. Sky blog on there. There's a lot of great content on there, and uh, it's a great way to learn more about what's happening, and it's expressed in a way that even laymen like me can understand. Hey, Steve, we've, we've yes. spoken about this before, but... Uh, what exactly sparked your interest in space and astronomy? I know in spite of the honorary title of Dr. Sky, you're not uh, actually a, a Ph.D., but you seem more knowledgeable about what's going on in space than many of the Ph.D.s that I've actually spoken to. How did you get to know so much about what's well, happening in the Thank you, Mark. I mean, that's a nice compliment. But that's here, true. here it is, very simply. Back in New York, when I lived there, we were in Jackson Heights, Queens, very close to LaGuardia Airport. And at the time, friends of ours worked at the Bolivar Watch Factory that was over there. And here's, what it got, here's how I got started. One night, which was back in 1966, a long time ago, I remember people saying, hey, there's going to be a meteor shower tonight. And I was a little kid. I didn't really understand that. So we went up on top of the apartment building, and then the lights of New York weren't as you know, bright as they are today, but they were still bright. I got to see this amazing thing, shooting stars, as they called them, or meteors, then, from money that I earned, you know, from doing household chores and my little allowance, my parents helped me, and we got this little $10 telescope, and we got started in that area. And ever since then, Frank, it's been, you know, a real passion. And the Dr. Sky name, obviously, is part of our corporation. Dr. Sky Incorporated, for the things that you talk about that we do, so many public programs, multimedia, and all that. But that was something else. Going to the Hayden Planetarium when we were little, my sister actually cried and had to run out of the room because if anybody's been there, at least the old days, remember the big projector, 
she thought it was like a giant ant or a monster. Wow. But that was a great place to go and still is, obviously, one of the classic of the planetariums around the nation. But without taking too much time on that, Frank, if people want to learn more about what I've done, it's simple. They put up a Wikipedia page for just Steve Cates and the rest is history, and people could go there and see the details. All right. Uh, without further ado, we'll give uh, the callers an opportunity to be heard. Let's begin with Robert in Philadelphia. Hello there, Robert. Hey, how you guys doing? Good morning. Hi. Good, Robert. How are you? I have to say, Dr. Sky, I love listening to you, but boy, you sound like Lou Dobbs like nobody I've ever heard before. Um, <laughs> well, thanks, I, I had, guess. This actually I is Lou quick... Dobbs. That's why uh, oh, okay. the, Yeah, the, you, if, if you hear pass. Steve he go off pass. on illegal immigration, then his the jig is up. <laughs> That's a whole different <laughs> subject, right, Robert? We don't talk absolutely, about Absolutely, absolutely. I, I was wondering, is it true that you could fit every other planet in the solar system between the Earth and the moon. Absolutely, if you condensed everything. But remember this, the biggest gap in the solar system is simply the one that we call the gap that's between, well, actually the most area that's there in space is between Mars and Jupiter. But yes, if you compacted everything, even more interesting, you could probably put all the planetary objects into the size of Jupiter, because remember, both Jupiter and Saturn are just gaseous, gaseous yeah. all the way, and you'd probably do the same thing with Uranus and Neptune. So, yes, you're on to a good uh, thing down there. And, hey, we love Philadelphia. We have a lot of friends down there that are regular listeners uh, and obviously to this show. But uh, as you get a little bit to the west of Philadelphia, you know you get to see a little bit of a dark sky, and that's what it's all about, and we appreciate that. Thank Robert. you, Robert. Tyrone is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello there, Tyrone. Good morning. Um, Dr. Good morning. Sky. Um, do you believe there is an end to the universe? Because well, here, yes. if there is an end to the universe, what barrier could possibly cause it to be an end? In other words, oh, the end of yeah. mm-hmm. Go ahead, sir. I'm sorry. Okay. And also, the other part of my question is, you said 49 things have been sent up there and now have to be deactivated and are going to come back down and burn up at a yeah. cost of a tremendous amount of money. So why are we doing that when the Earth, people are still starving down here? So it's a kind of a two-part question. Well, Tyrone, let let me go to the first, I mean, let me go to the last part of your question there. And it's very interesting. You bring up a good point here. I mean, what Elon Musk is doing, there's controversy in all this. I think the technology is great. But if you take it from the astronomy side, the astronomers are scratching their head. And Frank, this is also interesting. Their photos that they're taking are getting photobombed by all the Starlink satellites. But obviously, it's a money thing. I mean, and I think in one way, Tyrone, I mean, we could debate this all night, but again, we could just give you the best straight-up info, and that's what I'll give you. It's going to help a lot of people with his Starlink system, because there's places on the Earth that people do not have access to Internet. And if so many people in the world are deprived of that, I think they shouldn't be, so that's a good thing. But going back to the first part of your question about where and maybe how far does a universe expand, and then maybe what's the end? If you look about 13.8 billion years ago when the alleged expansion took place, and I say alleged because it wasn't an explosion, you know, it happened not around the Earth, the Earth wasn't here. The best guesstimates I can give you now is that on either side of the universe, if you took the whole spherical ball now that's expanding, it's about maybe 90 billion light years beyond where it started. But the interesting thing is I don't think that that's the end at all because more and more physicists and astrophysicists are talking about the thing called the multiverse. So we may be, in the most simplistic way, Tyrone, a universe that's built like sausages on a string 
And obviously, there may be many more universes of what we call multiverses. Kind of an interesting subject. Wow, absolutely. Uh, 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Let's say hello to Corey in Brooklyn. Hello there, Corey. What's your question for Steve Cates? Good morning, Corey. Hello. It's an honor. I love when you're on. Um, Thank you. Thank you. My my question was, uh, there's a thing we call the dark side of the moon. Yes. And is there, when you're in another hemisphere or, say, different latitude or longitude, do you see different sides of the moon, or is the dark side never visible from Earth? The dark, or we call it the far side, and I don't want to sound like okay, the far side. I'm sorry. No, I don't want to sound like a no, no, no. I don't want to sound like an intellectual snob. They call it. The far side for a good reason, because Pink Floyd obviously took the thing, and I love them too with dark side. But the simple answer is the moon, we never see that other side or hemisphere of the moon. And what's really interesting, Corey, is that the Chinese have done something which is really amazing. What did they do? They sent a little spacecraft and a couple of these spacecraft to the far side of the moon with a little rover that's running around up there called U-2, but the simple answer is we don't see the other side because the moon, as if you hold your hand in front of your face and you move around in a circle and your hand follows you around so that it doesn't appear like it's rotating, we're kind of what they call the synchronous rotator. And in the simplest way, we never get to see the far side. But it's an amazing uh, region of the moon. There's so many other strange things. that It's much more cratered than the front side of the moon that we see. So we don't see the other side. Thank you, Corey. You know, you alluded to what China's doing in terms of space exploration. Even, you know, China, obviously we have a very interesting relationship as a country with with China. At the height of the Cold War, we had an interesting relationship with the Soviet Union, and they had a very robust space program. As it stands now, what sort of cooperation, if any, is going on between the American space program and the Chinese space program? And why are they doing so many things that we haven't been doing, like going to the moon and examining that far side of the moon, for instance? Another good question, Frank, and here's the simple thing. The answer straight up is America does not have, unless there's some secret negotiations that all of us are not aware of, they're not part of the International Space Station. The Russians are, and there's some tensions there. The space station will be up there to at least 2030. But China has a very unique space program. And by the way, I don't remember the gentleman's name who was actually the person who developed the Chinese space program. But the simple story behind that is this was a man who was educated in the United States at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And I believe he was deported. And I don't know exactly when, but he gave all the think tank information to the Chinese space program. But the bottom line with them is they're doing some amazing things that are shocking the world. Here, here's one to give you a couple of or a couple of examples. They developed that Mars rover. They developed a Mars orbiter and they developed a Mars lander. No country, even the United States, did not do all of those things in one fell swoop. So last year they sent a, a mission to Mars. It had a descent module. The other, you know, the, the other part of the spacecraft stayed in orbit. It had a descent module, which is it landed on the surface, and out of it came a rover. So their technology is just amazing as what's going on. And going from the geopolitical stuff, what about the hypersonic missile that they supposedly have that has potentiality for nuclear you know, devices to be placed on it? Uh, many in our own military, including what, 
chairman of the Joint Chiefs Millie has sure. even kind of shocked, too. So they're just doing things at a, at a robust pace. But let's hope that somehow cooler heads prevail because it looks like they want to dominate space. And I guess that's a no-brainer if you read into this. Yeah, now that is for sure. If people are just tuning in, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're talking with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. You can check out more of his work at KTAR.com. Coming up next hour, we're going to talk with Sandy Bean. Uh, she is one of the leaders of a group called We Decide New York. And uh, she has staked out, which is uh, something which is kind of an unpopular position in many different quarters, which is she is uh, the head of one of the largest pro-Andrew Cuomo groups, and she's one of the people angling for an Andrew Cuomo comeback. We're going to get into that with her coming up next hour. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Jay in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hello there, Jay. How you doing, Frank? Hey, good morning, Jay. Go Bengals. <laughs> yes, you better believe it. It's been a long time. There you go. I've got a little local connection. My grandfather worked at Sperry Gyroscope. Okay? Oh, wow. And uh, he started in Brooklyn Navy Yard, and then they moved out to New Hyde Park. They had a, a large facility there. Mm-hmm. Well, the Hayden Planetarium had a class where you could make your very own six-inch reflective telescope. Oh, yes. Okay. Absolutely. And he, my grandfather was the guy who helped everybody grind their own lenses. Wow. That's okay. an honor to hear this. You know, Jay, that's amazing because I remember being part of that group. There was a group called the New York Amateur Astronomers, if I have it right. And, Jay, that was amazing because I didn't actually do what you're describing there, but that was something unusual because most places never gave the you know the person the ability to do it. And that's real old school, right, Jay? Because nowadays people buy telescopes wherever they get them. You, you, know, you better believe ordering. it. That's yes. incredible. Yes, yes. He, he had, I have wonderful pictures of the, all those classes, and here's my grandfather instructing everyone how to make your own lens, which is what a beautiful precision. story. Oh, yes. you bet. It, it okay. takes skill. The, the Sperry gyroscope found out he was doing this, mm-hmm. and at the time there was no GPS. So my grandfather, they found out he was making optical flats for the navigation systems of Minuteman missiles and all the missiles, early missile systems. Awesome. Wow, that's pretty cool, Jay. Uh, Thanks for sharing that. Uh, This is a treat. We have something of a celebrity caller on the line, uh, Steve. This is uh, my friend John Tobacco, who's very well known in our area, recently ran for New York City Controller, also Mm. happens to uh, host a show on Newsmax TV called Wise Guys and happens to be a a longtime friend of mine for over 20 years. Uh, John Tobacco, great to hear from you. Good morning, John. Hey, Steve, good morning. Frank, good morrow. It's always great listening to you. The only person that can keep me sitting in my car for a half hour because I just want to keep listening. <laughs> and then when you have on Steve, forget about it. I might be out here all night. But, uh, Steve, I, I, I am uh, I am a, a little bit of a uh, universal astronomical wonk or amateur wonk. Sure. And uh, I was recently reading an article um where they focused the telescope on the darkest spot in the sky for 40 hours straight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found inside there, like, multiple galaxies, like, uh, millions of, you know, innumerable galaxies that sure. equaled more of those behind them. And yes. I'm just trying to figure out well, what does that really mean in comparison to the size of Earth to the depth of the galaxy. I can't even do the math. 
Well, John, first of all, good morning. Your comment and your question are great. Here's the answer on that. The Hubble Space Telescope, the astronomers there, decided to do something and just see what they call the deep field image. And what they did, they took a little swatch of the sky, like you'd take a piece of, say, a bedspread and cut a little piece of paper or whatever, a little thing like a postage size, maybe against the sky. And it was dark from here in the Earth. You could look up there and you'd say, ah, even with a telescope, you know, like we would have in the backyard, you can't see much of anything, few stars. They imaged that, spent a little time doing it. And lo and behold, like you said, John, they saw innumerable numbers of gal- incredible numbers of galaxies. And what's even so stranger is it's peering deeper and deeper and deeper into that early creation of the universe. And if that was what they saw through the Hubble, can we all imagine, right, John, what they're going to see with the James Webb Telescope, which is hopefully going to be mind-boggling. And, guys, what they just did is the Hubble, I mean, the James Webb Telescope, excuse me, they just imaged their first star. And it's not the things what the astronomers are looking to see what's around the star. They're trying to coordinate and calibrate the lens and the, and the mirror system on the James Webb. So, John, you brought up a good subject. So in that little tiny darkness area, there was just so many galaxies, and the space is just so amazing. It literally is you know, limitless. It's just amazing. I, I, I kind of try to play around with the liberal, um, you know, global warming theory that's caused by man. And, and the more space I find in the universe, the less and less I think that we could have any impact on it. Um, so it seems like me to me that we're only finding the inner depths of the galaxy at this point. Sure, John. And going on to the subject real quickly of climate change, all weather comes from the sun. So I'll leave it to the audience to decide. And the volcanic activity on the Earth, I mean, you know, it's great to be a conservationist like, say, Teddy Roosevelt. We don't want to pollute. Nobody does in the right mind. But if you look at it this way, that Hunga Tonga explosion that just took place in the Tonga area in the South Pacific, that's put up so much in the way of carbon dioxide Mm. and sulfuric acid. But the point is, the sun drives all weather. So anybody who wants to take another side of this, I would just hope that the media would give us more of an open mind to give us both sides of the story. And I think, John, you're onto something there. John, uh, well, great thank, to hear from you, so my much. friend. I will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you, thank you John, John Tobacco. Uh, again, you catch him on Wise Guys on Saturday nights. Now, um, 800-848-9222 if you want to jump on board. Uh, the p- phones are jammed, but, uh, Steve, I don't want to let the hour go by sure, without no. following up on uh, a story that you briefly touched upon with John Katsimatidis on Sunday morning. That is uh, the subject of Antarctica, probably yeah. our most mysterious continent, probably the continent, not probably, definitely the continent the fewest people have visited why are we talking about Antarctica now? What are the mysteries happening in Antarctica that people need to be aware of? Well, here's a quick summary, and it may take me a moment because there's so many of them. And with John, we explored just a few, and that was a great exchange. But if you're ever looking for meteorites, Antarctica has probably the most amazing number of these. We don't really know why, but the easiest way to find them is that they're dark brown or black. They're like burnt like a piece of coal, and they're sitting on ice, so you can identify them. But here's something interesting. Back in the year 1513, a Turkish admiral named Piridrius actually developed a map of the world. Now think about this. This map of the world, how did it come out? Well, on the map of the world, that's amazing that he did. He shows all of the structure of Africa, pretty much an identical way it looks from a satellite, and South America. And he also had a description of Antarctica, which in many ways was kind of primitive, but it wasn't all that bad. So here's the size of this particular continent. 
It's 1.5 times the size of the United States. But, Frank, 90% of all the ice in the world is there. And it gets even more bizarre. There's over 400 underground lakes, two miles below the ice. One of them is called Lake Vostok. They're living organisms in that particular salt-laden lake. It doesn't freeze. Even more bizarre. There are red waterfalls that come out of this glacier called the Taylor Glacier from iron ore that comes out of the earth. The lowest temperature ever recorded there. Here we go, folks. It's cold in other parts of the country, but this one's a real uh, knuckle bender. 128.9 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Ouch. But even more amazing, however, it gets even better. There's a buried forest and a mountain range with many fossils that have been found. And there's this mountain range that's 750 miles long called the Gamberston Mountain Range, a large hole in Antarctica that nobody can understand, an active volcano called Mount Erebus, which sadly, a DC-10 with a bunch of tourists flew around there from Air New Zealand back, I believe, 1979, and sadly, they got snow blinded and they crashed into the mountain. Wow. That's a sad thing. But here we go. I saved the best for last. Adolf Hitler actually sent an expedition to Antarctica to claim that particular continent or a large part of it for the Reich. Well, what's so strange about that? Why did he do it? For the land? No, he had a fear. Get a lot of this. This almost sounds too bizarre to talk about on the radio, but it's true. He didn't want the German people to be deprived of fat, like butter fat. So they wanted to go down there and do the whaling thing for the oil. And guess what they wanted it for? Simply something we call margarine. Now, that sounds like it doesn't fit into any story that has any science. I I can't believe I've never heard that before. So Hitler claimed Antarctica for the Nazis, parts of of Antarctica for the Nazis in the name of margarine? Well, I guess that's the funny way to think about it. But think about it. They wanted to do the whaling, which is whale oil. And then it even gets more bizarre, which goes into the whole, you know, conspiracy thing. And I don't know where I stand on it, but also the possibility that there were some levitating craft that were built and developed down there or found. And if you think about a movie that, of course, had two, you know, two two editions of it, you look at this whole movie that they had where there was a flying saucer buried in the ice. And you remember in, in both of them, it was James Arnest was the monster in this, the first edition of the movie. But anyway, I think Hitler and his the Reich, they were looking not just to develop a food source for their people, mm. but they wanted to claim a good portion of it for the Reich. So all that story is just amazing. And it, it goes into an expedition. They sent a ship down there with, I believe, some kind of a seaplane that they could fly around. But uh, Wow. I'm glad things turned out that they didn't succeed. Absolutely. Uh, that is wild indeed. 800-848-WABC. Bill is in Huntington. Bill, you're on with Steve Cates. Good morning, Bill. Okay. All right. Most of the stars in the galaxy are red dwarfs, right, for different reasons. Okay. I mean, well, I've saying, never seen one. Right. Can I see right. one? You know, that's interesting. No, This is interesting. No red dwarfs, to my knowledge, are actually visible to the naked eye. Now, you're right about this. The evolution of stars, that's their end of life. And astronomers are saying, <clears throat> Bill, excuse me, that if there are potential planets around many of these, well, there are potential planets around many stars, that the probable place to look for so-called intelligent life may not be around sun-like stars like ours. But because of the predominance of red dwarfs, that's something that, of course, there may be these potential planets where the temperature is just right. 
But here's one that I'll give you out there and everybody listening to check on. The nearest star to the Earth is the Alpha Centauri, or the system, is the Alpha Centauri system. The little tiny star called Proxima Centauri is actually a little closer, but it also in the category as being a red dwarf star. So what I'm saying is about 4.16, 4.20 light years away, we have this object that going back to what I just said about the possibility of more life type or organic life, maybe that's a place, but there are so many red dwarfs that populate this galaxy and others. And if, if you are looking to spot some interesting activity in the night sky, uh, we've covered, you, you caught us up with what the James Webb telescope is seeing but if people have a pair of binoculars or a telescope themselves, maybe even the naked eye, is there anything coming up in oh, the yes. in the coming nights or the weeks, months, that people should be prepared to keep an eye on? Well, I understand your weather's good. So as we move into the early morning here with the ninth, anybody, just even with the naked eye, if you have a good view of the southeast sky, and you're probably seeing this already, that brilliant beacon of light that you're seeing is not a UFO or an aircraft trying to land. It's Venus. And what's happening, Frank, is we get to Valentine's Day, being a little bit in the you know, love side of the world. Venus, the goddess of love and beauty herself, is brightest this morning on the 9th. So if you get out there and you have a clear sky, there's no reason that anybody with the, you know, even average eyesight, you'll not be able to miss this. It's extremely bright. And then on the 12th, Venus shows its greatest illuminated, illuminated extent. What does that mean? In a telescope binoculars, Venus is a fat crescent. So the more of Venus that's illuminated because it's closer to the Earth than normal, that gives it its greatest brilliance. That's just beautiful in itself. But the early morning planets, Frank, right now, it used to be the evening sky when we had Saturn, we had Jupiter, and we had a few other objects in that area, Mercury. Now that everything shifted to the morning sky, so as this month evolves, you're going to see Mercury, Venus, and Mars relatively close together in the sky in the southeast and especially for Valentine's Day. So who is she? She's the goddess of love and beauty. So take your significant other out there, right, and say, look, there she is. <laughs> Certainly ironic that it happens to be the week of Valentine's Day and you can Isn't see that. Isn't that a great one? All right, we're going to continue with Steve Cates in just a moment. 800-848-WABC if you want to jump on board. Three open lines. Those of you that are holding, we will try and get to you. Uh, I have a number of other questions. We're going to squeeze in as much content as we can within the next few minutes straight ahead. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by my friend Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer. You can learn more about some of the subjects that we've been talking about by going to KTAR.com. And uh, he's lucky. He's very kind to join us on this program from time to time. I'm lucky enough to be able to ask him questions, and you're lucky enough to have that same opportunity right now by dialing 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Andy in Old Forge, Pennsylvania. Hello, Andy. Good morning, Andy. Frank, how are you? I I love listening to you, and your programs are great. Thank you. Uh, 
I wanted to ask Dr. Sky. Well, I, let me tell Dr. Sky something first. I worked for 25 years, almost 25 years at the shot company in Pennsylvania. Oh, oh yeah. And we're, uh, you know, shot in Germany, in Mainz, made the uh, ceramic base for the Hubble telescope. Oh, it was amazing. Absolutely. With Perkin Elmer, I guess, was the contractor on the mirror. Right. Yeah, they Absolutely. screwed up the polishing on the first run, <laughs> yeah. but they did fix it. <laughs> you bet they did. And I knew the astronaut that hey, fixed Dr. it. It was Story Musgrave. Um, I'm 70 years old. I'm, I'm semi-retired right now. Yes. But uh, I enjoy stargazing in astronomy. Oh, yeah. And yeah. is there any uh, Internet program or uh, offering where I could learn to be a better stargazer? Well, I'm going to recommend the website here, Andy, and I think this one really not, knocks it out of the park. It's a good friend of ours in Italy. And he's developed a place called, or a website called The Sky, just theskylive.com. And why I think this is fascinating, and Frank, this is also good for everybody listening who's beginning in astronomy. It gives you what's happening in the sky. It has a personal planetarium that you can set up by wherever you live. In other words, not everybody has a super sophisticated smartphone, let's say, where they can do the sky apps. Go right. there and check this out because I think you'll and – and I think the gentleman is, is – Giuseppe is going to be really happy in Italy, right, Frank, for me telling him <laughs> this. But it's, seriously, it's a beautiful website. I use it a lot. But here's the final part of this. If you're right. a telescope viewer, it gives you the most amazing view. Like let's say I'm looking at a planet, let's say uh, Saturn. It shows you exactly where Saturn is in the deep field sky. So in other words, if you have a telescope, it's not just the regular view that you see when you're standing with your naked eye. And it shows you where the objects will be moving in the course of hours, and it's a real-time thing. And you can actually see comets moving. I've used it so many times. So the skylive.com, that to me is a real it, – it, it's like a gift to the world, in my opinion. Oh, I got it, Doctor. That's great. Yeah, that's a great question, Andy. Thank you. Uh, let me ask a question as well before we continue with sure. the call, Steve, is yes. a couple of weeks ago, the, our, our owner, John Katzmatidis, asked me uh, to, to follow up on a science fiction uh, program that I had recommended on the radio because I think it was a day of a snowstorm. A lot of people were yes. stuck home, and he was in the mood to watch some compelling science fiction are there any compelling science fiction movies or television programs that are available on streaming, for instance, that you'd recommend? Uh, maybe something that people have missed? Well, I think the simple answer to this is if you go back to Carl Sagan, I think his original Cosmo series was really something that I think people should watch. And I think for young children out there, you know, obviously it's family friendly. And he had a certain flair about him. I remember visiting with him once at Cornell University and spent a little time with him when he was alive. But the point is, I think I would watch that particular series. That's more science as, as it sure. goes. But I think if you look in, there's a, I'm a big collector and big fan of a lot of the sci-fi B movies. And people may laugh at that and go, well, that's kind of stupid. Some movies are kind of dumb. Well, the point is, I like to look at them. But here's one, if, if you really want to have some fun, here's a classic that I think everybody should see if they have it. It's Earth versus the Flying Saucers. Hmm. And it's a classic black and white movie that I think actually has some very interesting science in it about the flying saucers that the aliens flew. And it's just an amazing series about how they did the special effects on this. And the whole story is just uh, something that I would watch over and over again. But that's a recommendation. Earth versus the Flying Saucers was one of my favorites. All right. There you go. That's pretty good. All right. Uh, Let me say hello to Makita in Queens. Hello, Makita. Hi. Hello. Hi. I have a question for Dr. Scott. Thank you guys for uh, 
allowing me to ask the question. Dr. Yes, Sky, could could you explain how? Um, well, I, I read that black holes are the only celestial bodies that are dense enough to bend time behind and around them, right? Yes. Could you explain how time bends when it is in the proximity of a black hole? Is well, it's very interesting. Something? If you think about this, Makita, this is fascinating. And again, we're just learning. We're scratching the surface on this. Einstein had it right. Stephen Hawking had it even more correct. What's happening as anything in the universe, electromagnetism, gravity, everything, as it gets closer to this area around it called the event horizon, everything is warped by time and space. So in other words, the greatest gravity fields that we'll ever come across, at least now, is that of a black hole. And this is interesting because even Stephen Hawking said that black holes may not be as finite as we thought. In other words, black holes may not be as constant. They may pop in and out of the universe over time. But how they're doing that, it's bending space and time because gravity is being pulled around the curvature of space. It's so powerful that it's warping the entire time-space continuum. And there's also a theory, and you've probably all heard about this, Frank and Makita and everybody listening, that what goes in must come out. So there's the possibility that this is a transmission point where material goes in the black hole and it comes out in something called a wormhole. And that's also fascinating, but we're just we're just scratching the surface on this stuff. What causes solar flares, and do you think that one of these flares could flare off the sun and actually reach any of the planets, and not Very just the radiation? As I mentioned before, solar flares is a refresher here. When magnetic lines on the sun between sunspots snap, that's the simple answer. They send this big snapping energy field in a, in a flare. Now, this flare, Frank and Tommy, that just is, is causing what happened with the Starlink satellites. This flare lasted for three hours. So these flares don't normally last that long. And that particular flare has blasted out something called a CME toward the Earth. Venus got hit. But Venus doesn't have a magnetic field, so it's not going to work. Venus is you know, protected, basically. It doesn't worry about that. But here on the Earth, we could, and I don't want to alarm people or alarm Tommy. Tommy, you don't sound like you alarm easily. This particular gigantic flare that we just had, that's mild by comparison, because over history, it's thought that there have been some mega flares. And going back to what we are talking about, can they reach the planets? Yes, indeed. All of these go out into the solar system, but there have been times when I'm sure they've actually reached all the way out to the areas like Uranus and Neptune. And if there were inhabitants there, they would have felt it. But Earth's closer, and it would have been a destructive device that's uh, man-made. Mm. Now, and that uh, is... Non-man-made, obviously, nature. Right? Uh, you know, uh, one listener, Mike in New Rochelle, sent me an email. And in our final minute, I, I figured I'd, I would ask you about this. Besides Buzz Aldrin... Who are the other three living people that have walked on the moon? Well, that's interesting, and I, I know it's Harrison Schmidt, and I'm trying to think of the other people that are that are that are alive today. I've had them on my programs, but now I'm trying to draw. I'm drawing a blank here. But Harrison Schmidt, the only geologist to go to the moon, is still alive, and Apollo 16. I'm trying to think of the gentleman. God help me if I can, can't think this quickly at this hour for me. But you only oh, was have... it David Sott? I just looked. It's David Dave Scott. Scott, right? David Dave, Scott. Yeah, Dave Scott is alive, and also I'm trying to think here. You have Harrison Schmidt, and you have Charlie Duke, and you have Buzz Aldrin. I think those are the answers. All right. Well, uh, uh, the hour has just flown by, Steve. I will very much look forward to the next time we have the opportunity to do this. It is always a treat to talk with you. I want to encourage everybody to check out your blog at ktar.com. My only regret when it, when it comes to having you on the radio, Steve, is that you're not on every day. 
Well, thank you, Frank, and I appreciate it. Love being on 77 WABC and love the listeners and love the show. And we'll be uh, seeing you soon, and I'm sure that that'll happen, and we'll get ready to do that. Absolutely. And the... This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, as you can tell by my discussion with Steve Cates last hour, I'm into space, okay? And really, what spurred my fondness for what happens in outer space was a television show that I've been watching since I was four years old. Probably before that, but I remember watching it since I was four years old. That television program, of course, is none other than... All right, you mutinous, disloyal, computerized half-breed. We'll see about you deserting my ship. The term half-breed is somewhat applicable, but computerized is inaccurate. A machine can be computerized, not a man. Oh, Star Trek. I mean, just hearing Nimoy and Shatner go back and forth with classic dialogue like that is great. To me... There is not another show like Star Trek uh, in the world, in the galaxy. And there have been other shows, and it's not to say that every episode of Star Trek, the original series, was a gem. It certainly was not. There were a lot of bad episodes, a lot of episodes that were kind of corny. But um, to me, it was a show that really encouraged human beings to dream of what's possible. Not only was it classic drama... Not only was it classic comedy, not only was it great, even if it was set not in space, but in the middle of the ocean somewhere or on an island, to see these great relationships that the characters had with one another. But it really inspired creativity. It really inspired American ingenuity. There's so many people that have worked on developing technology, that have worked on the space program, that said they were inspired to do so because of Star Trek. What the devil is this? Green leaves? It's dietary salad, sir. Dr. McCoy ordered your diet card changed. And I'm a fan. Always have been. Now, when Star Trek The Next Generation came out, that was another show that was just a classic show. In fact, there's some people that actually preferred Star Trek The Next Generation to Star Trek The Original Series. I think there's room for both. After Star Trek The Next Generation, you really, it's a, it's a different world, okay? There's a level of quality with those two series that is a step above everything else. Some people say it's due to the, the fact that Gene Roddenberry worked on those two shows and he didn't have anything to do with the other series. You know, there are varying theories as to why that's the case. So lo and behold... 
I read every email that gets sent to me, and you can email me as well at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But I got an email from one of our uh, terrific listeners. He listens all the time. Uh, That's uh, Jeff Schilling. And Jeff uh, brought to my attention a new Star Trek series that was going to be on the horizon. And I had not heard about it. And it's called Strange New Worlds and had kind of a, 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 a it had the Enterprise on it, the classic Enterprise. And I said, that's kind of cool. Let me look at it. But I have not watched Star Trek Discovery. OK, so Star Trek Discovery was on. I watched the first episode and then I didn't want to subscribe to CBS All Access. And then kind of just life got in the way. And I haven't been able to catch up on Star Trek Discovery. It's gotten sort of mixed reviews from, uh, you know, from Star Trek fans that I've spoke to. I don't like to use the term Trekkie because, I don't know, it had kind of a pejorative nature to it. So I, I don't, you know. So Jeff sends me this email saying, just what we need, another one. That was the subject. And then it's a picture of the Starship Enterprise. And it's cool. And it says, the frontier is waiting. Star Trek Strange New Worlds, new series streaming May 5th. And I said, what is this about? You know, what's the point in sending me this email? And this is what Jeff said. Just got notice from Star Trek site of another new series. Scroll down to the bottom of the picture if you didn't already. It says starting in May. This makes something like the sixth or seventh spinoff of the original series, not counting the animated ones. Enough is enough, in my opinion. And sure, look, we remember the original series. Then you have the animated series, which he doesn't want to count, but there was actually some very good episodes of the animated series. The Next Generation, that's three series. Deep Space Nine, that's the fourth. Voyager, that's the fifth. Enterprise, that was the sixth. And then for 12 years, that was it. There were six series and a whole bunch of movies. And that was it for 12 years. But since 2017, there have been a barrage of Star Trek series. You not only have Discovery, which takes place right before the original series, you have you have Short Treks, which I have not seen. Uh, you have Picard, which I have seen, which brings back uh, Patrick Stewart as... Jean-Luc Picard, you have Lower Decks, which is an animated series, which I have not seen, but my brothers, uh, two of them, lo- watch and just love. You have Prodigy, which is uh, airing on Nickelodeon, and it focuses on a group of teens who embark on an adventure upon an abandoned Starfleet ship. And now, with this new series coming out, You have a new series called Strange New Worlds. And my question for you is, is uh, is enough enough? Do we need a little bit of a break? Because it used to be it was very easy to have seen every episode of every Star Trek series. And you could know about it and you could talk about it and you could see where it fit into the Star Trek universe. But I'll be honest. So I have I have seen Picard, but I haven't seen Lower Decks. I haven't seen Prodigy. Uh, I haven't seen Discovery. I haven't seen Short Treks. 
I'm starting to wonder, is this too much of a good thing? Have we taken the Star Trek franchise and taken those of us that were Star Trek fans and sort of have they drowned us in Star Trek content? Or and, and the same could be said of Star Wars, too. For years, you had the three movies and that was it. And then you had three more. And then if you wanted more content, you had to get the books. Now, it seems like every year there's a new Star Trek, uh, Star Wars television series and movies. And I do just, I get concerned. And again, I'm not saying this is happening here. But I get concerned that there's a such a desire to milk the Star Trek or Star Wars cash cow for a little bit more, a little bit more because they know the fans of these franchises are so devoted, and many of us will see anything, especially in the case of Picard that has stars from the other series, like Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine, Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard, that they know we'll sit there and watch it if you throw a Star Trek label on it. Now, in the case of Picard, I thought the work product was actually very good. But are they sacrificing quality for quantity? What do you think? 800-848-9222. Now, I guess this is probably something that is only going to be really a question for Star Trek fans. So if you're a Star Trek fan, do you feel as I do, and I guess as this fellow Jeff Schilling does, that maybe we're getting a little carried away? Maybe there should be a quota of the number of Star Trek series that are airing at the same time, because we've seen this before. Around the time uh, Voyager debuted, and Voyager debuted on a network which was new at the time called UPN, the United Paramount Network. Deep Space Nine was airing in syndication. So that meant it aired in different places at the, uh, you know, different days, different places and different times. And I remember when Voyager debuted, I don't know if you remember this in the New York area, but back in 1995, Voyager actually aired, unless my memory is really failing me, and I don't think it is, uh, Voyager aired at the same time that Star Trek Deep Space Nine was airing on. So if you were a Star Trek fan, you had to choose between in, in what you wanted to watch. Do you want to watch Deep Space Nine on Channel 11 or Voyager on Channel 9? They were on the same night at the same time at the New York area, at least for one season. And you know what happened with me? I stopped watching Deep Space Nine, which I was enjoying. Uh, And I said, all right, I want to be on the ground floor of a new Star Trek series and make sure I've seen everything, make sure I've seen all the episodes of this new series. I'm going to stop watching Deep Space Nine. Now, I subsequently got back into it years later, but I felt like that was an unfair choice. Now, with... So much of TV viewing on demand, you can kind of catch up at your leisure. But who has the time to watch this much television? I mean, uh, I don't. And I suspect many of you don't either. Maybe some of you do. But um, I still haven't seen Discovery. And now we're talking two, three, four new series. Who knows how many more? Do we need a little bit of a break? Or is more Trek better? The more Trek, the better. 800-848-9222. That's one eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Eric is in Manhattan. What do you think, Eric? Hey Frank. Okay, so I I watched the uh, Next Generation, of course. Um, I I um, 
Deep Space Nine was good, but I barely had time to catch it, just like Voyager. And then here we go around to Enterprise, which I want your opinion about, because I think I think fans took it took it all for granted that there would, there would always be Star Wars around. I mean, Star, Star Wars, Star Trek, and I think I think the fans killed uh, killed Enterprise, which I thought was um, uh, underrated. Yeah, you what know, you I I liked Enterprise when it was on, yeah. and then um, you know I lost interest in it, I guess because of what was happening in the world, the terrorist yeah. attacks, yeah. and yeah, us going to go. war with everybody. So I stopped watching it, and then. Years later, maybe a year or two after it left the air, I got I got into it and I went back and watched all the episodes. And I agree with you. I think it was quite yeah. good. I don't know that I think it was as good as Deep Space Nine, quite frankly. Yeah, Deep Space Nine was good. I remember that. Well, Deep Space Nine was it was all established. Enterprise, it's like kind of before. It's like a right. prequel, you know. Right. Right. Um, now, now one more thing. The uh, what was I'm, I'm blanking out here. Um, crap. There's something else. Oh, oh, the new new series, Star Trek Discovery. Um, well, it's I hear it's like the you know the new Star Wars. It's made by people who hate Star Trek. They're well, making Star Trek. Yeah, I, I, don't I don't know. know. They, I, they call this they call STD some of some of the fans. Right. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Thanks, Eric. I don't know if that's the case. I've heard from some people that are not, not Star Trek fans, like my wife's brother-in-law, James. He really likes Star Trek Discovery, and he's not really a Star Trek fan. And then I've heard some from some other people that um, do like Star Trek. And they like Discovery. So other people like Star Trek, and they said, all right, this season of Discovery is good. That season of Discovery is not good. I'm a big fan of Captain Pike, and uh, I understand he's on Star Trek Discovery. So I am going to watch it one day, uh, but uh, I don't know when, quite frankly, especially now with uh, a child to look after. I don't know uh, when I'll I'll get around to it. I mean, look, uh, there's only one original series. Ready to beam up, Jim. Energizing. And I, I just wonder, it, to Jeff Schilling's point, do we need a little bit of a break? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Good morning, Frank. I'm one of the opinion that we should expand it even more. I, for example, would love to have seen a series on the Dominion. There was a book that was published by a friend of mine called Tales of the Dominion. I'd like to know more about the Dominion. I'd like to know more about the founders. I'd like to know more about the Jem Hadar. Um, one of the reasons I loved Next Generation, even more so than original Trek, especially with most of the bad uh, episodes, you know, were in episodes, were in se- uh, seasons two and three, uh, pretty much. The good episodes were usually in season one. One of the reasons I loved Next Gen was because it really fe- focused in on the Federation. We saw Starfleet. We saw Starfleet Academy. You never saw Starfleet Academy in the first series. What you saw was a nice spaceship bouncing from planet to planet, saying, oh, you know, we're not going to violate the, you know, the prime directive. And they violated the prime directive every time. They yeah, well, again, this- there were there were some uh, budgetary restrictions in term that made depicting certain things a little a little difficult in the original series. So, uh, and, and again, it, it's easy, you know, we, we all follow up on the shoulders of the people that came before us. But in terms of um, your call for more Trek series, Robert, are you all caught up? Have you seen all these series? 
Yes, I can, and I, let me exp- let me tell you something. I don't know whether you have cable, but if people do have cable, there is one channel, number one fifty one on Spectrum. It's called Heroes and Icons. Yes, I've seen every that. night. They show all five series in a row. Uh, oh. they sh- but no, but for instance, have you seen Lower Decks? Have you seen no, Prodigy? No, 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 because you see, I don't have a computer, so I, I can't stream. I see. Well, if you, and if you have a smart TV, they're on there as well. So that's what I'm saying, Robert. You still haven't seen all the – so you haven't even seen Picard yet. No, I haven't, and I would love to see, see it if it's I good. I think that. you would like it. See, I, I don't think you're in the best position, Robert, to comment, and I, I appreciate your enthusiasm. But essentially, you're saying we should have more Star Trek series, and yet you haven't even seen the existing Star Trek series. So I'm not sure you're the best judge. Uh, We're going to talk about Andrew Cuomo and his possible comeback in just a minute with Sandy Bean from a group called We Decide New York, which is a group that doesn't think Andrew Cuomo was treated fairly. We're going to get into that momentarily. But first, let me say hello to Dan in Farmingdale. Hello, Dan. Yeah, Frank, I was wondering if you ever saw the, uh, I'm guessing it's 1975-ish, Devil's Reign with William Shatner? No, but I've read Shatner's book, and he writes about that film. So it's actually, it's on my list, but I've never seen it. Ernest Borgnine, that's a great one. And you had a caller a few weeks ago, and you were comparing Spock's women to uh, Kirk's women, and you you came up with the one I never even thought of when, uh, you know, uh, Spock was playing the uh, the bicycle rim, and Aurora was giving the eye. But you left out two of the best. The Cloud Miners episode with Droxine was hot for Spock, sure. and there was the one with the uh, Mister Atos and the uh, Tabacron, where uh, uh, the, the girl in the furry bikini when they they sent uh, yeah. Well, I, a... again, I, I wasn't looking to name every love interest that Spock has had, Dan. Okay. But um, you know, those are both fine to mention. I mean, he has my opinion of my favorite uh, love interest for each of them. But uh, hey, we'll talk Andrew Cuomo in just a minute. But Nokior is in Manhattan. Hello, Nokior. Hi, Mr. Morano. I'm calling with tremendous enthusiasm to express thanks, enormous thanks to the beautiful way that you have with uh, Dr. Sky. It enhances your program enormously, the way that you elicit questions, the way that you speak with the guests who are calling. It adds tremendous value to the service that you're providing and to the way that this uh, WABC is reaching the audience. It's educational. It's something which is fascinating. And at a time when we're trying to understand what's happening in the universe and the world, whether in New York or anywhere in the world, your program puts into perspective the enormous quality and the, the potential for for everyone in the world. Well, Thank that you is so very, very much. That is so kind and, of you. You I... know, your, your producers are doing a marvelous job in coordinating all this in order to make your program so fascinating. And thank you very, very much. That's awfully nice of you, uh, please. Thank you. And thank you to our many, many producers that work tirelessly to make this uh, a reality. All right, we're going to talk with uh, Sandy Bean in just a minute. Uh, She is an unabashed Cuomo-ite, probably one of the original Cuomo-sexuals. We'll talk to her about Andrew Cuomo and the possibility of his return to office straight ahead. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, the world, political world at least, was rocked this week by a series of articles, one in Bloomberg News and one in the Wall Street Journal, indicating that one former governor, Andrew Cuomo, who I guess until recently had the word disgraced uh, before his his former title for the last couple of months, one feels vindicated after no charges were filed as a result of the recent sexual harassment scandal, and two, is actually considering a run for office again, potentially even this year, maybe even for his old job of attorney general. Well, there is a collection of very loyal, very dogged Cuomo supporters that sounds like they'd be just fine with that. Uh, Very, very pleased to be joined by Sandy Bien. She's an advertising and marketing executive and grandmother from Rochester, New York, who helps lead We Decide New York, one of the largest pro Cuomo groups. Sandy, thanks for taking the time to join me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. Sandy, I have been uh, a bit of a Cuomo critic throughout his tenure as governor, uh, but I think that this recent report that issued by the attorney general's office was embarrassing, quite frankly. And I've spoken with a lot of other people who have not necessarily ever been fans of the governor, but they thought that the items that he was driven from office for for really didn't have a lot of basis in fact. Tell us about your story and your perspective. Have you always been a fan of Governor Cuomo? Frank, I, actually, I've been a fan. I voted for him, but I never really got involved as much as I am right now. Uh, this halt started, of course, Lindsey Boylan came out in December um, of 2020. And then um, when Charlotte Bennett came out, uh, I believe it was in February, I I stood, I listened to what they were saying and what the media was reporting. And there was something about it that didn't sound right to me. And online, there were these groups that were popping up in support of the governor. And, it, of course, many people just praised him for what he did during the pandemic. And I was one of them. I mean, I, I latched on for 111 days, um, you know, as an older woman with children and grandchildren. We didn't knew, know if we were going to live or die. And mm-hmm. every day he gave us hope to go to the next day and not be scared. I went eight weeks without seeing my children or my grandchildren. It was uh, terrifying. I, I'm so, st- I can't imagine. Yeah. Um, so I joined this group online, Facebook group, Women for Governor Como. And um, from there, several of us branched out and we started We Decide New York. Now, and we've been uh, around. so uh, just so folks understand where you're coming from, you've always uh, kind of liked Governor Cuomo, especially for his leadership during the pandemic. And then uh, this this recent scandal and your questions about some of the accusations in the scandal that drove your enthusiasm even further. 
Absolutely. Um, Again, I'm in my 60s, and I was in the workforce in the early 70s, and it was prevalent then. Um, Sexual harassment was commonplace. And um, so when I first heard about this, I was like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to me. How severe could this really be? And then knowing Governor Cuomo the way I did, just from watching him on TV, it didn't seem logical to me. So we began to look into things. And we um, began to be active in several of the groups out there and then decided that we wanted to form our own group. You uh, look, we've seen over the course of history, a lot of groups that are ostensibly grassroots groups who are actually being promoted by the very principle that they're advocating on behalf of. I, I know personally a lot of people that have done things like that. Just so folks know your perspective, do you do you have any personal or um, uh, professional relationship with Governor Cuomo? Are, are you guys meeting for dinner on a weekly basis? Is he uh, paying you from his campaign funds, for instance? Okay. No to all of those questions. Um, we, When we formed We Decide New York, we became uh, – uh, we became an IEC, with, which is an independent expenditure committee with the New York State Board of Elections. And because we wanted to do everything up above board and also be legal, it prohibited us from being involved with any politician um, or their family. So we are very strict in that. And so we have no affiliation and never have with Governor Como or any member of his staff or family. Okay, and people are just tuning in. We're talking with Sandy Bean. She is one of the leaders of We Decide New York, one of the largest pro Cuomo groups that actually has members from around the whole country. So you alluded to the reactions that came that you had when the Lindsey Boylan accusations came out, and then when the Charlotte Bennett accusations came out, and you basically alluded to sort of uh, an instinct that uh, you didn't think that the man that you would come to know, at least as a public personality, could ever engage in the kind of behavior that these women were describing. Beyond instinct, once you look at the evidence of the accusations, what was your initial feeling about what they were claiming and how that jived with the facts? Well, first off, my first reaction was, why did they go to the media? And I mean, if you know anything about workplace sexual harassment or sexual assault, the first place you go to is HR. Um, They're extremely competent in dealing with these kind of things. So that was the first red flag that was raised for me. Why didn't they go through the proper channels? Why go immediately to to the media? And then we started to look into people like Lindsay Boylan. And, of course, we found that she was running for Manhattan Borough president. And that raised another red flag for us. Mm. Uh, Could it be a political, could it be personal and political motivation that was driving this? And, of course, when she went uh, ran for political office several years ago, she did not get the endorsement of Governor Cuomo. And um, we again thought, huh, maybe this is retaliation at some level. Then um, 
Charlotte Bennett came out, and we listened to her, and we didn't think she was credible either. Um, If you remember, one of the things that she said was that the governor had groomed her. Obviously, she didn't know what that meant. Um, That has to do with an adult grooming a child. Mm. And so we sat back and we said, wait a minute, Um, you know, how credible is this person? And then, of course, as months went on, it was all over Twitter. Um, and social, uh, other forms of social media, that she had been in on a case at Hamilton College and that she was involved in 2017 and actually ruining a young man's um, reputation at school. He wasn't able to graduate. And it came out that she, at the end, during the investigation, said that it was all fabricated. So we became, you know, we thought, how, how could this be? Where's the media and all this? I mean, it was, it was so interesting weird. that the, what you just mentioned, which is pretty relevant to any serious accu- accusation of sexual harassment. It was interesting that that was omitted from the uh, Letitia James report done by the former U.S. attorney, June Kim. Wasn't that interesting that that was not even mentioned in the report? It was not, and it wasn't difficult to find. Um, We had people that worked and found a lot of that information. So you have to wonder, why didn't the attorneys find this? Why didn't Letitia James look into any of this and check the credibility of these people? I mean, that's the first place I would have started. What was your reaction overall, aside from that glaring omission, uh, which I think is pretty damning of the entire report, but what was your reaction overall to Letitia James's report and then her subsequent press statements where she made no bones about the fact that the governor had uh, committed illegalities? Uh, I remember exactly where I was when I was watching it, and I was absolutely horrified. Um, Her statement, and I'm paraphrasing now, was that she believed the accusers. None of this would have been illuminated if not for the heroic women who came forward. And what this investigation uh, revealed was a disturbing pattern of conduct by the governor of the great state of New York. And those who basically did not put in place any protocols or procedures to protect these young women who believed in public service. I believe women, and I believe these 11 women. And I'm sitting back and saying, how, you know, we have all this background information that we found, and, you know, social media is full of information. And I'm sitting back and I'm thinking, how could this possibly be? And there has to be something else that's going on here. And, of course, in the beginning, when all these Democrats came out and, you know, wanted him to resign, I thought, wait a minute. He's part of the Democratic Party. There there's other things that are going on here that they're not bringing to light. This is much more than 11 women coming out and saying that he's, you know, sexually harassed them. And I didn't believe that it even came to that level of being a criminal offense.
when Tish James came out with all this, um, not a lot of what she said makes sense. But at that point in time, we didn't have the transcripts to go back to. Um, We had to look at what she said, listen to her, and say, well, maybe there is something there. But even at that point, we thought maybe it was just innocent flirtation. And I have to tell you, I come from an Italian family, and we are huggy, kissy. um, That's just the way we are. That's our culture. So some of that I brushed off as just somebody that, you know, had always done it. And if you look at pictures online of Governor Cuomo, you'll see him doing that from years ago. And you'll see other politicians doing it where they've taken pictures. So we knew quite clearly that was there was a political agenda here. And um, the fact that he wanted to uh, run again for a fourth term, we knew that probably was was going to be an issue. I mean, typically politicians run for three terms and then they kind of go into the sunset and do something else. Um, And also during the pandemic, if you remember, if you watched any of the uh, briefings, there was scrolling comments and people are saying, you need to run for president. We want you as president. And so my mind started to work in a way that said, ah, the Democrats don't want him in there as president. This is part of the problem. They're trying to stop him. Interesting. Well, I was just going to ask you about the nature of the motivation. But, you know, it was really interesting to me. They they keep trumpeting this number of 11 women, 11 accusations. And to me, it was uh, so silly that they lumped all 11 of these accusations into the same category. Some were more than 20 years old and involved a hug that might have made someone feel uncomfortable. Some involved a, a photograph that might made someone uncomfortable supposedly and yet they still put it on social media and others were of course more serious they involved uh, allegations of uh, uh, forcible touching but then we saw many DAs Westchester County uh, Albany County the DAs around the state investigate this and this is in of course an era in which they say a grand jury which is impaneled by a DA can invite indict a ham sandwich and yet none of them could find a credible charge to indict him for and bring charges for. Did you find that when that last DA's office made the determination not to bring charges, did you find that that your suspicions had been vindicated about this whole uh, this whole report and all these Tish James allegations? Absolutely, absolutely. And actually, they were vindicated when some of the transcripts came out and then most definitely when um, the video came out of their testimonies. I mean, we watched them. We were horrified. And why this was why she even or even June Kim or Ann Clark, why they did not look at their testimonies and base their investigation on what was said, what was fact, what was true. Um, It's mind boggling to me. Obviously they had a bias and that became very evident. So what do you think the motivation was here? I mean, you alluded to the fact that 
Andrew Cuomo was going to seek a fourth term and that he was being talked about as a, a national political figure. I mean, he really had a precipitous fall from being the toast of the town, winning Emmys, getting book deals to being thrown out of office as a sexual harasser. Why do you think Tish James did it? Why do you think June Kim and Clark did it? Why do you think the legislative leaders that were ready to impeach him over this report, why do you think these people all did it? What was the motivation here? I think they wanted him out of office. It's quite clear. They didn't want to take the chance that he was going to run for a fourth term. Um, let's face it, in the um, in the assembly, the governor was not really well liked. And I'm sure that people had personal and professional issues with him. Um, he was not a um, pay-to-play governor. And in politics, that sometimes is a huge problem. So I think this was strategized. I think it was very carefully, carefully implemented. And I think the only way the assembly could get him um, out of office was to stage uh, something that they would that would be impeachable. And that's my feeling. And if you go back to I think it was March 12th, um, there was um, there's a, an app called Clubhouse. And you remember you may remember this. Uh, Alessandra Biaggi, Gustavo Rivera, Yulin now. Um, they all got together on this app in Clubhouse, and they had a conversation about how to bring Como down. Their strategy was extremely clear. I mean, they wanted to outmaneuver him. And at that time, the Como, uh, Cuomo was being accused of nursing home deaths. And it, during this um during during this uh, clubhouse, um, Lindsey Boy or um, sorry, Senator Alessandri Biaggi said, "You should abuse your energy. It's time to go." Proclaiming that to oust Como, they would wish a mother effing military. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, so this was all strategized. Um, let me ask you about the uh, role of Governor Hochul. Uh, she didn't seem to play much of a role in his takedown, but has seemed quick to distance herself from her role in his administration. Do you view Governor Hochul as having any culpability here? Well, absolutely. She was part of the Como administration, and you can't tell me for a minute that she didn't know what was going on. Um I think she knew exactly what was going on and the fact that there was no sexual harassment. And but for her to come out and say it, that would jeopardize her moving into governor. And I think mm -hmm. that's what she wanted. I think, again, that was very strategic on her part. And let's look at what she's been doing since she's been in office. You know, she she's taken credit for things that Como did. I mean, the last thing was the LaGuardia Airport. I mean, that was infuriating to watch that. You know, she stood up there and she did her ribbon cutting and not once 
did she recognize Governor Cuomo in that? And he's the one that started it. He got the ball rolling on that. He did oversaw most of the work that was being done there. And it was not mentioned. She took it as though she was the one that made this happen. And to the people in New York State, that's infuriating. What are your hopes for this year? As I alluded to at the outset, there have been some reports that uh, Governor Cuomo may seek to run for attorney general. He certainly has an exhaustive war chest. Some of the people I've spoken to anecdotally who are Democrats, they are actually hoping that he runs for uh, for office again. On this station yesterday, uh, Bill O'Reilly said if he had a choice between uh, Letitia James and Andrew Cuomo, he'd be picking Andrew Cuomo. What are your hopes in terms of the political landscape for this year? I hope that Andrew Cuomo comes back. Um, We are, as an organization, of course, we support him 100%. Let's face it, New York State is in crisis. Um, I listened to a speech by Kathy Hochul the other day, and she referred to infrastructure as green space and more parks. She also said that she wants to bring communities together. To me, when I listened to that, I said, I don't think she understands what infrastructure is. We have bridges collapsing. We have roads that need repair. Um, She also made a comment to the fact that she doesn't mind trashing people. And I was horrified, and that is a direct quote. This was her speech in Buffalo when she was introducing the next speaker to come out. And I thought to myself, is that who I want as my governor? Absolutely not. And, of course, it was all over Twitter. As far as you're concerned, you alluded to the nursing home scandal. There are some people that have claimed that this sexual harassment scandal was done as a sort of window dressing for the nursing home scandal and a way to edge the governor out of office and off the stage for this rather than come to a reckoning on the nursing home scandal, which would have potentially implicated a lot of other folks, governors in other states, uh, maybe even Mm -hmm. federal officials and others. What do you say to that theory, Sandy, that uh, this was done to provide cover for the nursing home scandal? Um, I, I don't believe that's true. I think that they were, they wanted to get the governor any which way they could. And that was investigated. Uh, The Manhattan District Attorney, the elder care unit, investigated that. And they closed the investigation on the nursing homes. Um, They claimed that they went through a thorough investigation. And there was no evidence to suggest that any laws were broken. I think they just kept piling it up and piling it. It's like the book deal. You can't tell me that there are not um, people in the Senate, people in the Assembly that haven't used their staff for other purposes like campaigning. Um, I, I don't believe that. And yet that was a, just another layer to guarantee that they would. Um, they would force the governor to resign. I, I think maybe we'll save the uh, book deal discussion for another day. And if people are just tuning in, <laughs> we're talking with uh, Sandy Bean. She's an advertising and marketing executive and uh, grandmother from Rochester who's helps, uh, le- who helps lead We Decide New York, Inc., one of the largest pro-Cuomo groups. So, Sandy, let's say the governor, uh, the former governor, ultimately decides not to run for attorney general or governor or anything this year. 
What do you do as a voter, uh, knowing Letitia James' role in Governor Cuomo's downfall and knowing Governor Hochul's glee in that downfall? What do you do as a voter in each of those races? Well, what I'll tell you what our organization has already decided to do, and that is to focus a lot of our time on um, reaching New York voters and to let them know that the voters have the power. It is the people that decide who governs in our state, and we want to provide them with the facts. We don't want people going to the polls and just picking somebody. It's too critical to the future of New York State. We have to pick good leaders. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on. Uh, Very interesting. Um, What do you say to the mantra that we were told really throughout the onset of the Me Too movement that it's so important that we believe all women? And uh, some folks might say that uh, your work here, questioning Lindsey Boylan's version of events, questioning Charlotte Bennett's version of events, raising concerns about the credibility of some of these accusers, flies in the face of that mantra of believe all women. Well, I think you have to go back to the original purpose of the Me Too movement and what Burke intended for that. And that is to empower sexually assaulted people, and it's not just women, it's men as well, to form so that they have some sort of empathy and solidarity in numbers, um, especially young and vulnerable women, and most specifically in the workplace. But what the Me Too movement has done is they've gone too far. And what they've done is they have made it very difficult for men Uh, in the workplace. Uh, I spoke to a reporter one day and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, how do you feel about going into a conference room with two women to have a meeting and shutting the door? I mean, in my business, it happened all the time. He said, I wouldn't do it. Um, That that leads me to my, my next question is, are you fearful that not just this case, but other similarly similar cases, are you fearful that perhaps we have criminalized traditional normal behavior between people of different genders in the workplace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this will only get worse and worse. And women will feel the effects of this. And I'm going to tell you how. That's because when a woman goes in for a job interview or is being considered for a job, I, I believe wholeheartedly that men who are in charge will question it. They don't want their lives ruined. They don't want their reputations ruined. They don't want to lose their jobs. And I don't believe that all women tell the truth. I mean, we all know that. We've all run into women that don't tell the truth. So it's ludicrous. If people want to donate to your group or learn more about it, uh, is there a website? Is there someplace they can go in order to do that? That would be wonderful because we operate right now just on um, contributions to our organization. Um, yes, they can go to We Decide New York Inc. and it's WeDecideNewYork.com. And they can also check us out on Facebook. And we have Wednesday evening meetings every Wednesday at 730. And it's a platform where we do discuss what is currently going on and how we're going to act as a group 
to affect not only the Como case, but also how we're going to affect the New York state elections coming up. There's 150 assembly people that are up for re-election, and I believe 63 senators. That's huge. Uh, that, that's for sure. And uh, as I said at the outset, I, I've never been a fan of Governor Cuomo politically. Uh, I am pleased that he's no longer governor, but I am sick over the fact that this was the mechanism uh, in which he was removed as governor. And uh, I, uh, I, you know, I wish you the best of luck with your efforts, Sandy. Thanks for the great well, work that you're you. doing to educate people. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. All right. Uh, if you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Sandy B, and you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. I think we may have succeeded in doing what I so often seem successful at doing, which is infuriating people on both the left and the right. If that's the case, give me a call, 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight? That is the immortal question from the great Lonnie Donegan. Uh, if you want to comment on anything we've covered thus far, give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. Now, let me warn you if you're uh, considering calling. We're having some phone issues today, not due to anything that's our fault, but because of Verizon and the servicing of our phone line. So if you call us, we're going to have to call you back from the studio. So if uh, for whatever reason you're not prepared to give us your phone number, then don't call. But, you, you know, we're not going to keep your number or anything. We're just going to call you uh, when you call us so that we can avoid. Otherwise, there's this horrible hiss uh, that's on the phone line if you just call us. So just deal accordingly. Be prepared. Now, uh, you may not know it to hear me, but you are listening to a man that got a haircut yesterday. Very excited about that. It's just something about a haircut that makes you feel, I don't know, uh, refreshed, born again, if it, as it were. And, uh, yeah, well, that's that. I was excited for this haircut, and uh, my wife warned me because I got it at 930. Right. Right. Nine thirty yesterday morning. And she said, you know, you really should take a shower or something. And uh, I, I sort of nodded like I would. But then I uh, I just went to bed. She said, well, I mean, after she saw that I you had the, I had these tiny little hairs all over. All. Oh, <laughs> oh I get it. That's the, the buzzer sound. You know, my guy currently doesn't use a buzzer. He just uses scissors. But she saw I had little hairs all over young Carmine's head, I guess, from when I hold them and stuff. She said, that means it's all over your pillow, too. I guess it's probably a good idea to shower afterwards. But I was so tired. I just wanted to go to bed. 
What's the big deal, ultimately? All right. Uh, we're going to squeeze in as many calls as we can here. Stuart is in Forest Hills. Hello, Stuart. Yes, Frank. I'd like your opinion if you agree with, if you agree with me on this. I'm thinking if Andrew Cuomo runs against Tish James and he wins the primary for attorney general, that um, the Republicans may get a big-name candidate for attorney general who's well-financed, who may find it easier to take down Cuomo with all of his skeletons with the uh, nursing homes than they would Tish James. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that? Well, uh, in theory, I do. In practice, I'm not so sure. Uh, I, uh, For instance, you know, petitioning starts in less than a month. So that means Cuomo and the hypothetical big name candidate that you're talking about is probably, let's say, for instance, George Pataki. George Pataki is a big name and he's eligible to run for attorney general because he is an attorney and lives in the state of New York. He'd have to probably jump in by the time of the state convention, which is around March 1st. So the clock is the enemy here for every everybody. The, the issue that uh, a George Pataki or any big name Republican attorney would have that Cuomo doesn't is they have to raise all that money. Cuomo has $16 million in waiting for him to be spent, uh, whereas Pataki or anybody, unless they're independently wealthy, would have to uh, start from scratch. And, I, you know, I'll be honest, it, it's already such a disadvantage running as a Republican. We'll see what happens. It's certainly going to be interesting if he ends up running and there is a primary with Tish James. Those of you that are on hold, I will get to you. Um, we got a lot of other stuff to get to as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you have your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. You want to weigh in on uh, social media, you can find us on Facebook. Just search Moreno Radio Fans and Haters. There's actually a poll on there. I didn't create it, but one of the listeners did. Asking, what is it about this show that, uh, that you like the most? And wouldn't you know it, as of this morning, last time I checked, there were six people that voted that their favorite thing about the show is the guy that calls in at the end who says Sid is a moron. Now, it's not my favorite, but it is interesting that at least six people said that same thing. Those of you that are calling to discuss Andrew Cuomo, uh, we will get to you. Speaking of politicians and sex, have you seen what is going on in the world of Oregon? There is an election going on for governor. In Oregon. And a top candidate in the Republican primary for Oregon governor has admitted that he and his wife had explored a swinging lifestyle before deciding that swapping partners was not for them. Stan Pulliam, who's 40 years old, who's a mayor of a town called uh, Sandy, Oregon, told the Williamette Week, that's the publication, 
that he and his wife of 12 years, Mackenzie, had, quote, explored relationships, mutual relationships with other couples for a brief period of time before ultimately deciding that it wasn't for us. Pulliam, the mayor of his hometown of Sandy, fessed up to the outlet after a 2016 screenshot from a page titled Swinger Facebook Group PDX made its rounds across the state's political circles. This is the statement that he put out. Hi, everyone. Mackenzie and I are excited to be added to your little community. Some of you we have already had the pleasure to meet, and we look forward to getting to know the rest of you. He wrote in the group, which had 536 members at the time, that is reported by the Williamette Week. In an interview last week with the newspaper, Pulliam declined to reveal when the multiple when the mutual relationships began or ended, but said the couple's participation ended well before he began running for the state's top office. I got to tell you, I'm going to read you whatever other details we have here. I hate this. I absolutely hate every aspect of this story. Now, he's being asked about the most intimate details of his wife, he and his wife's sex life, just because he wants to serve the public. You want to know why people don't go into politics? This is why. Because you have the the most intimate details of your life plastered before the media and you're asked about them. I mean, it's so embarrassing. I think people can relate from all different parts of the state who've been involved in marriages, he told the newspaper. There are different stages of marriage and different ebbs and flows. This is something that was for a brief period in our past, and it's in the past. Now, this is a guy that's a strong supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, This is a guy that also, like Trump, questions the results of the 2020 election. And uh, he says, if you want an actual conservative, because remember, he's got to win a Heated Republican primary. If you want an actual conservative as your next governor, then we need your help. So I'd love to ask you, whether you're conservative, liberal, or whatever, centrist, whatever you're, or non-political, would this affect your vote? If you were a voter in Oregon, or in whatever state you happen to live in, and one of the candidates running you learned had been a swinger in the past, would that affect your vote one way or another? And why or why not? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. My my answer is no, it would not. Uh, To me, Stan Pulliam's sex life is none of my business. Uh, Whatever he and his wife want to do, as long as nobody gets hurt, as long as it's consenting adults, I couldn't care less. I want to know what kind of job this guy does as the mayor of his hometown. I want to know what his ideas are for governor. If he wants to, uh, you know, if he wants to have sex with, uh, I don't know, butterflies, as long as the butterflies are consenting adults, so be it. Doesn't make any difference to me what he and his wife want to do. And I think it's a shame that, one of his political adversaries tried to publicly embarrass him by taking these screenshots. Now, I've talked about this over the years with Roger Stone, and uh, he and his, he has been very open about the fact that he and his wife are swingers. And he's essentially said the same thing. And I'm not saying I would vote for this guy. I don't know who else is running in Oregon. But I'm saying this would not affect my vote 
one way or another. I'm curious if it would affect yours. I think it's a shame that you can't run for office in this country without having to explain your sex life to total strangers. I mean, really. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. 800-848-9222. We're also going to talk with um, Michael Averco about the Russia situation. I had Michael on a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was blown away by the feedback uh, that I got to that discussion. And uh, I continue to be alarmed at what I'm seeing on the Russia front, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to talking with Michael Averco about that. And uh, this is the last thing I'll get. I'll I'll mention in our sexual topic troika. You know, I, I I really like the New York Times Magazine. I know a lot of you you have to you just have to mention the words New York New York Times, and it's like holding up a cross covered in garlic to a vampire. You refuse to read every, every anything. But I'm going to link to this one article that was in the New York Times Magazine, and I thought it was really interesting. They have this column called The Ethicist, and basically there's a guy that's supposedly an expert in ethics who answers your questions about ethics. You you throw a different ethical issue at him, and he answers it. These are the kind of questions that I expect on Ask Frank Anything. Instead, I get who was the only president that died of cirrhosis of the liver, which, by the way, turned out to be an incorrect assertion. The premise of that question was flawed. Uh, And I know Woody Allen really wants me to talk about the Mexican-American War. Sorry. So anyway, this is the question uh, that came out in last weekend's edition of the New York Times magazine. I'm going to read it as is. I'm going to give you my take. And then I am going to tell you what the New York Times ethicist Kwame Anthony Apaya said in response. But I'd also love to hear your take on it. This is the premise, and I'm gonna. I'll ask. Uh, I'll ask Matt Blaze to weigh in as well because uh, heaven knows he's certainly an ethical guy. Our dad died a year ago, and our mom recently told my sister and me that she cheated on him for the last 10 years of their marriage. I don't think our dad ever knew. He wore his heart on his sleeve, so he couldn't have hidden that sort of thing. My sister and I had wildly different reactions to this information. My sister is horrified and accused my mother of never having loved him. I had a different take. Our mom says that she loved our dad and being with him romantically, living together, raising a family, intimate kisses, etc. But that he wasn't the best sex of her life. So she cheated. But she made sure he never found out. And my mom and dad still slept together because she knew that he enjoyed having sex with her and loved her body. And the sex was good for her, even if not the best. I don't feel that it makes sense to be mad at my mom for the infidelity. It's true that she didn't want to be with him in that I only want you way, but she loved him enough to make him feel as if she did. If from his point of view it was a perfect relationship and he died happy, does it really matter that he didn't know all the details? I feel I'm missing something in not being upset at my mother. To be clear, I don't think she should have told us 
because there was no reason to. But I'm trying to think about whether the infidelity itself was wrong because the fact that my sister and I see things in my my sister and I see things differently is driving a wedge between us. Signed, name withheld. So 800-848-WABC. This woman and her sister are having wildly different reactions as to how they should deal with their mother who cheated on their dead father for 10 years. What would you do if this was your mother? 800-848-9222. So you can comment on anything we've covered thus far. You can comment on my premise of the swinging Oregon Republican gubernatorial candidate, or you can answer this New York Times ethical question. I'll tell you, I, I mean, I wish I had a show like this when I was a kid because this is like a Chinese menu of listener interaction. This is an incredible opportunity to uh, – it's like those – I used to love these books when I was a kid where you get to choose your own journey. Oh, if you think uh, Charlie should walk through the door, go to page 22. If you choose uh, – if you think Charlie should stay where he is, go to page 18. And you kind of make your own story and you keep reading the book depending on which option you choose. You have the option. You have all these options ahead of you. I don't know where, where I'd go. 800-848-WABC, uh, 800-848-9222. Let me, let me address my answer to this woman before I take your calls and tell you what the New York Times ethicist said. My answer to this woman would be, look, the mother did not do the right thing, obviously, by cheating on her spouse and lying to him for 10 years. But uh, I would still be, uh, I would not be mad at my mother because at the end of the day, it's your mother, right? And I really think you, you're, you, whether your parents are good or bad or somewhere in between, as most of us are, you really owe your parents a tremendous debt of gratitude because without them, you wouldn't be alive. And I really think that counts for so much. I really think that gets you out of a lot of... Uh, jams in terms of your children being mad at you. Without them, you wouldn't be a lot. In my judgment, that counts. Look, it's not right that this their mother committed adultery. But who is really well served by snubbing the mother now? So that's the question in the New York Times magazine. I linked to it on my Facebook page if you want to read the whole article. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. Headline, is it okay that I'm okay with our mom's adultery? 800-848-9222. Choose your own journey. That's where we'll go. Let me begin with Carol in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Carol, I got you. Carol has found other things to do. Let me say hello to Dave in Dumont. Hello, Dave. Hey, Frank, what's up? I'm on a different category. Uh, I'll say real quick, I don't care about the politician's sex life. It's nobody's business, okay? Uh, There were two pictures from the New York Yankees in the 70s that swapped wives and kids. I don't know if you remember that. I I remember hearing that. Remind me who the pictures were. Fritz Peterson, and I forgot the other guy's name. But I have something I'd like to get to if you would please give me the time. Can I, can I go? Well, what is it, Dave? I mean, I can't say yes without knowing what it is. Okay. I gaffed. 
I said 250 people die from doctor mistakes every year when I called last week. It's 250,000 people die from doctor mistakes. That's the third leading cause of preventable death. And you agree with me. You said that was a good point. I also want to have a very entertaining poem. It's called, Is There a Doctor in the House? With a funny punchline. I'd like to read it. All right. Well, go ahead. Okay. Is there a doctor in the house? And I'm going to pause at the punchline so everybody can laugh. You've gone to top schools. You should know all the rules. Now it's time to do your duty to serve your community, to help people that are ill, not to send us through the mill. What happened to the day when you saw one doctors for all your ills? I'm sorry, doctor. I can't believe the answer is taking all these pills. You see people from all walks of life. We trust that you'd give good advice. To put my mind at ease, I'm not too much trouble, would you please? What's that, a prostate exam? After all, you make a six-figure salary. Please get your finger out of there and stop calling me Valerie. All right, Dave, thank you. I want to thank everybody that complained that I don't give Dave enough time for his poetry. I hope you're happy now at this point. You are reaping what you sow. Uh, the many, many people out there that are clamoring for more Dave and Dumont poetry. 800-848-9222-1234-5 open lines. Hey, Matt, what is your take on this ethical dilemma that uh, that this uh, unsigned anonymous person posed to the New York Times magazine? Well, I agree with saying there was no reason to tell them in the first place. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's I, an it, odd choice. Well, it feels like she felt guilty because yeah. now the, the husband's dead. Right. And that, that's the only reason she would even tell her kids that at all, because now she feels guilty. Um, I don't think there's any point to be mad because it's done. The husband didn't know. He was happy. She took care of him. So, yeah, that's that. That's kind of where I am. That's kind of where I am. And I was trying to put myself in the shoes of the dead husband. And I was thinking... If I'm dead and my wife had, unbeknownst to me, been cheating on me for 10 years, would I want her to tell our child or children? And uh, ultimately, I I considered it a great deal, but my answer was no, I I would not. I don't see how it would help, um, you know, uh, anything. I would want her to tell me, but if I'm dead, it comes to the point where, you know, who's being helped by that? Now, let's say... She's so guilty, she's so burdened by guilt, and she wants to get it off her chest, and she does have to tell our child or children this this secret that she's been carrying for years. Would I want my child or children to hold anything against her? Again, I kept coming back with no. The answer is no. I don't see how their life is improved. My memory as a f- father uh, who's not there anymore uh, is improved, or how her life is improved. Uh, by by holding a grudge on this terrible thing, absolutely, and uh, the, this is the kind of thing that maybe you should talk about a little bit about in the course of a relationship. 
But uh, I don't see I, – I, I don't think you should be mad at your mom. That's my answer. And I'll give you the New York Times ethicist answer. But first, I want to hear from you. We have one, two, three, four, five, six open lines at 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. I think we'll go with the topic with being mad with your mother. I could never be bad. My mother's – dead for 30 years, but never could get mad with her. She did some real wild stuff with me. As we had, I had a godmother used to send me a birthday gift every year. She hid it. She had it in a drawer. When she passed away, I found all these birthday cards from my godmother. I called my godmother, and she fortunately I called her. She only lived another couple of months, you know, and I thanked her for the cards. But this is the way my mother was. She didn't want to share her love with any of the family members. So on that point, you know, but now I, when I originally called, I said it with Governor Cuomo. Cuomo. And with me, it's a love-hate with him. Uh, through the pandemic, he, with his little daily things that he, you know, gave his little speeches, I, he comforted us a little bit. I felt some comfort, but then... Now, Jacqueline's father, he died in the nursing home, and she spoke with you the other night. I know it to be a fact because I was, you know, in contact with Jacqueline at that time. So there was some anger for that and for all the other people, like that weather woman from Fox. I forgot her name right now. Right, Janice Dean. Right, losing her father and father and mother-in-law. That's, I mean, her mother-in-law and father-in-law. That's That's bad. So that's... But he passed on this. What about with these women that are so-called? How did he get away with this? What did he do, pay them off or something? I don't know. Well, uh, thank you, Pete. Look, I- I'm very clear and have been from the beginning. I'm not a Governor Cuomo fan. I think he was a terrible governor. And uh, I don't think he handled the pandemic well at all. I would never. I have never voted for him, would never vote for him for anything. Uh, that being said... I found Letitia James' report to be a total joke uh, for many of the reasons that Sandy stated. I mean, it's clear that um, this was an incredibly weak case. I mean, the fact that not a single prosecutor could bring charges and, and the fact that this report totally omitted the serious credibility problems of these so-called accusers, the fact that they lumped in allegations from 21 years ago with stuff that happened last year was, to me, just a sign of desperation. And, um, you know, they kept saying, uh, Dominic Carter said on his show last night, well, 11 women, 11 women. Well, if you look at each of the 11 instances There's very few instances of serious transgressions. Now, once you investigate those transgressions, as the um, as these D.A.s did. They found nothing criminal. So do we really want to live in a place? And again, I'm very conflicted because I'm glad that Andrew Cuomo is no longer governor. But I think it's so dangerous that you can run someone out of town, uh, out of office who was elected by the voters of the state of New York overwhelmingly with these trumped-up sexual harassment charges. And the last thing uh, that I said in my uh, interview to Sandy, and she agreed, is that I am fearful, and this has long been a complaint that I've had with the overreach 
of the Me Too movement, and I brought it up with the Jeff Zucker situation at CNN, which is more Cuomo shrapnel, and I think now we know that there was more there to the story. But I am fearful that we have criminalized normal human behavior, especially in the workplace. And I don't think that's that's not a world that I want to live in. Where um, so I, I don't I don't care for Governor Cuomo, but and I'm all for getting rid of Governor Cuomo, but we should get rid of him through elections. Uh, we should make a case for someone other than Cuomo to get the most votes. The way in which he was pushed out, I found to be egregious. That's my take. And that that has been borne out by these DAs that have refused to file any charges, even though any of these DAs would have loved to have filed charges against Cuomo, because that comes with publicity. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this swinging Republican politician in Oregon. Governor Cuomo, Space, Star Trek, or this ethical dilemma posed by a reader to the New York Times magazine. And we're going to talk Russia in about six minutes with Michael Averco. Very much looking forward to that conversation. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. uh, I was going to talk about Cuomo, but I can't let it go. That poem that the guy read about doctors, I mean, the guy's an idiot. Number one, don't take any pills if you don't want to take any pills. Don't go see a doctor if you don't want to see a doctor. I want to know how many years after college he went to a specialty school. He went to medical school, and then he did residency. How many years he did that? How many uh, thousands of dollars he has to pay for malpractice insurance? I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. And to say they make six-figure salaries, plumbers make six-figure salaries. I'm not saying anything against plumbers, but you don't think a doctor should make more than a plumber? I mean, what, is, what an idiot, uh, just an idiot. Oh, do, you, do you want to read a poem of your own, Neil? Yeah, I'll read a poem. <laughs> what an idiot you had on the show. I think now it's time for me to go. Not, not bad, Neil, not bad. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC if you want to comment on, uh, on, on any of the subjects that we're discussing. So let me read you the prescription from the New York Times magazine ethicist. I don't know what makes him so ethical. Your mother betrayed your father. Your parents did not have an open relationship. Her actions were inconsistent with an understanding of their marriage she allowed him to believe in. The fact that he never found out, and let's assume it is a fact, doesn't make it okay. Dishonesty is not redeemed by remaining undiscovered. This, I think, is what your sister gets right. But your mother valued her relationship with her with your father. I'm guessing she made the judgment that disclosing the truth, both her sexual discontent and her interest in sleeping with others who excited her more, would have embittered and perhaps ended an otherwise fortifying partnership to their mutual detriment. Other things being equal, a life lived in the light of reality. The reality of what's going on in your significant relationships is better than one in which your happiness depends on ignorance. But other things are sometimes far from equal. Human lives are complicated. This, I think, is what you get right. Uh, The one person whose point of view I don't really grasp is your mother. 
Why did she tell you all this? If she deceived your father in order to keep him happy and secure the relationship, why make such a different calculation with her children? She wasn't generally moved by the thought that living in the daylight of truth is of central ethical importance. Perhaps she didn't understand your sister and failed to realize that she'd be visiting on her daughter some of the anguish that she had spared her husband. So it seems like the ethicist is sort of in the same position that Matt Blaze and I are in, which is it's unwise to share something like this with your children, but that um, it's no sense burning your relationship with your mother over. 800-848-WABC if you want to comment. We're going to talk Russia with Michael Averco in just a couple of minutes. Gene is in Woodside. Hello, Gene. How you doing? Uh, I got a comment. Do you remember we had a Governor Elliot Spitzer? Do I remember Governor Elliot Spitzer? Yeah. Yes, I remember Governor. It was not anyway, that long ago, but yeah. yeah. His family had a piece of property down on the west side in the 30s that was useless. And they were big real estate people. He became governor. He had the seven train. At, used to stop at Times Square. Then now it made a left. It went south down to the area, and he built the Hudson Yards. In the Hudson Yards, I, I forgot where I read it, but some of the floors, the buildings, they only had four-inch paws in them because the building had to be built light so it could be moved. Well, anyway, he got that all done, and all of a sudden he got caught up with a hooker. Right, all the shit hit the fan. He didn't want to be governor. And, and he, he wanted to manage. And you can't say that, Gene. Oh, excuse me. But he got in trouble with the girl. Remember that girl? I forget the girl's name. Ashley Dupree. He to... Okay, he used that to get out. Now you got Cuomo comes in. He gets all jammed up at the nursing home, and the acidic Jews were terrible what they did. The uh... <clears throat> but anyway, he he gets all these women involved now. Wait, he gets away from that, which is the worst thing. What aspect of the Hasidic Jews uh, are you talking about, just so people are clear? Well, a lot of the Bergman family, they were Hasidic. They owned an awful lot of the nursing homes. They were in that business. And he gets jammed up with – he gets oh, – he, that's his big problem now. So he gets he gets used these women, and he skates on, on the nursing home thing. They both use the same common denominator. They use women to get out of their problems. So where where does coming back and running for attorney general fit into your equation? It doesn't fit into my equation. I'm sorry. I was just bringing up the fact that nobody brings up the fact that both governors use women to get out of their troubles. All right. Well, on their thank you, Gene. I, I think people do bring that up, including me. Uh, Elliot Spitzer had a lot of other issues. I'm not familiar with that seven train land deal that uh, Gene was referring to there. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just not familiar with it. Elliot Spitzer was abusing the power of the state police. He was uh, using the state police to spy on his political adversaries. He was doing a lot of other unsavory things as governor, which could have come back to haunt him. In both of their cases, I don't think – I I don't think they wanted to go. I don't think it was a choice that they made. In Spitzer's case, I think the feds basically told him, we have this evidence on you. We know you're George Fox, a.k.a. client number nine. And unless you resign, we're going to charge you with a crime. I I think that's why he ended up resigning. In Cuomo's case, 
I don't think he wanted to resign. And that's borne out by the fact that he wants to come back just a couple of months after resigning. I could see a scenario in which others, Carl Hasty, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, Letitia James, others, pushed him out because they didn't want to push him out for the nursing home scandal. But I don't think it was Cuomo's decision. I don't think it was uh, Spitzer's decision as well. 800-848-9222. Tom is in Manhattan. Hello. Yeah, good morning, Frank. Um, I just want to touch on that article that we were speaking about. Now, I haven't read the article, but it sounds like this woman <clears throat> has this article posted in regards to her guilt for not disclosing uh, her relationships with other people while she was married to the children. Is that correct? Uh, what, is it correct that she had guilt about it? Yes. I mean, that's the article. She wrote the article, correct? Not the kids didn't write the article. No, 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 no. So the, the, the New York Times does a column where they offer ethical uh, advice to people. And the daughter of this woman explained how she and her sister view their mother's confession very differently. And then the ethicist responds to the daughter's question. But what, what's surprising is how slanted that the New York Times is giving ethical opinions to this matter. And I, I read a lot. I read a lot of papers, a lot of sites. Uh, but when uh, in cases, you know, cases, case matters concerning the divorce, for instance, and custody battles and how 85% of custody of children are given to the mother in court. And many times the mothers, especially here in New York, uh, all right, so Tom, on. what what's your no, what, what my point is? My, all right, thank you. Patrick is in Cleveland. Hello. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Hey, um, that account of the woman who admitted to her children that she um was an adulteress. And yeah. I'm not judging anybody, but I'm pretty sure the Ten Commandments. One of them says, "Thou shalt not commit adultery." And uh, and yes, I'm not judging anybody, but maybe God will. I don't know. But does that commandment in the eyes of her children get undone by the commandment that says you should honor thy father and mother? Uh, I don't know, Frank. I just know that adultery is not my cup of tea. Well, it's not mine either. I would uh, be heartbroken if my wife was cheating on me. But is it worth – that's the fifth commandment, by the way, for the record – but – Is it worth abandoning a relationship with a parent over? I don't think so. Hey, uh, we're going to talk Russia next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Michael Averko, a man who has studied these issues related to Russia and Eastern Europe to a T, and a man who knows how to call out the shenanigans of the rest of the media and tell you the stories that you're not hearing elsewhere. He joins me next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I found my field on Blueberry Hill.
That is the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin, singing in English, Blueberry Hill. Singing it pretty well, I must say, for somebody that is not a native English speaker. It's not too bad. Uh, We are looking at the Russia and Ukraine situation and scratching our collective heads. Are we going to see an armed conflict? If not, what is the way out of this conflict? And why, this is more my question, why does so much of the media coverage of this conflict that we seem to see, why does it seem to be so one-sided? And, you know, I tweeted yesterday that uh, we've been hearing for what seems like six months that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is imminent. Now, at some point, if it doesn't happen, how can they keep saying it's imminent? And then, of course, there were people who responded to that tweet by referring by saying that I'm uh, Neville Chamberlain trying to appease uh, the Nazis in 1939. So, lo and behold. Hey, uh, very, very happy to be joined by someone who has an interesting perspective on the Russia situation and somebody who uh, we just got great response to last time that he was on the show, Michael Averco. He's an independent foreign policy analyst and a media critic. Michael, thank you for joining me on the radio. Thank you for having me back, Frank. Let me ask you first about the criticism that's been leveled at me regarding appeasement. If we allow Vladimir Putin's aggression to go unchecked, does that send a poor message not only to Vladimir Putin but to other would-be aggressors that the United States will allow you to do whatever they want? Don't we need to stand up to Putin to make sure that this doesn't happen? Right. Well, I know you're parroting their view, and I'm totally opposed to this selective use of aggression. Um, Just very quickly, as I said the last time, when other countries, including the United States and Israel, use a military option, okay, whether in a threatening way or in an actual way, it's not called aggression. Uh, Putin has not attacked uh, Ukraine, and um, his troop buildup is simply a repositioning of troops that already existed in Russia that are not being increased. And the reason for this troop buildup, as Emmanuel Macron and others have suggested, is for something else other than uh, seeking to strike at Ukraine. Biden has uh, created this uh, conflict, which otherwise would not have uh, been uh, evident. And what I mean by that is November 10th, Anthony Blinken first uh, echoes this um, supposed situation. The U.S. domestic situation was looking rather glum. So now the Biden administration, by promoting this uh, conflict, they take attention away from the domestic situation. And uh, Biden, when he says it's imminent, if it doesn't happen, his comeback is going to be what Juan Williams said to Brit Hume around the time we last spoke on January 11th, that if Putin doesn't um, attack, well, it's because Biden, the tough guy, laid down what would happen to him, and that's why he's not doing it. And this is totally absurd because they weren't really planning to do this in the first place. So it's taking credit for something that – wasn't going to happen in the first place. Some people have used the comparison. In fact, uh, even uh, John Katzmatidis, our owner on Sunday, used the comparison to the film Wag the Dog, where an unpopular president used the possibility of a foreign conflict to distract from domestic turmoil. Do you think that could be what's happening here? 
Yes, and to a certain extent, if you out there of age, back in 1999, Clinton was having uh, problems with Monica Lewinsky, and this is when the situation in Yugoslavia also got uh, trumped up a bit. See, the other thing, too, is if the Russians don't attack, the Biden administration has etched this image of a really bad, aggressive Russia. And so that's going to bolster the defense industry. and. Mm. Candidates like getting contributions from defense contractors because they're very generous. You also have in bed with what I call a tomb-headed monster, the defense industry, which is looking to increase arms sales. And by the way, they're on record as admitting that increased conflict with Russia benefits them. You have this anti-Russian lobby of people from, uh, with roots in Central and Eastern Europe who have an historical axe to grind against Russia. And it's no small surprise that at um, these defense contractor-funded um, think tanks like the Atlantic Council and the Center for European Policy Analysis, they're stacked with these uh, people of an anti-Russian uh, background from Eastern and Central Europe. Well, I'm not surprised to hear that at all, and uh, I'm guessing that's part of the reason why 80 to 90 percent of the Russia coverage we see is all about which political party can be tougher on Russia rather than what's the diplomatic solution out of here. You alluded to uh, France and uh, Emmanuel Macron. Putin met with uh, President Macron of France this week. And uh, as he was meeting with Macron, he addressed reporters and summed up what the two of them discussed. Um, yes. Well, yeah, hang on. Let me play you the audio. Okay, here. sorry. I see how much effort the current France leadership and the president personally put to solve the crisis tied to providing equal security in Europe in a serious historic perspective and to solve the issue of Ukraine's internal crisis in the southeast of the country. President Biden, for what it's worth, is only ramping up the the Russia heated talk And he is threatening to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2, which is a supply of energy that Germany is uh, is getting from Russia and purchasing from Russia. And Biden was asked about that this week, about what he would actually do to pull the plug on Nord Stream 2. This is what President Biden said. If uh, if Russia invades, uh, that means tanks or troops crossing the uh, the, the border of Ukraine uh, again, then uh, there will be uh, we there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We, we will bring an end to it. What, do, what how will you how will you do that? Exactly. Since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control. We will. Uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. To the Americans who are currently in Ukraine, should they leave the country? I think it'd be wise to leave the country. Uh, not, I don't mean our. I don't mean. I'm not talking about our diplomatic corps. I'm talking about Americans who are there. I hate to see them get caught in a crossfire. If in fact they did admit, and there's no need for that. And I, if I were they, if I had anyone there, I'd say leave. Michael, it doesn't seem that like President Biden is really on the same page with our NATO allies in France and Germany, is he? 
No, and he doesn't seem to show much concern for the American military personnel in their bolstering up the Kiev regime forces, which, by the way, include people with uh, rather extreme views that uh, support this controversial World War II Ukrainian uh, leader, Stepan Bandera, who collaborated with the Nazis. And that leads to another point, which you very much typically see downplayed by the Biden administration and his mass media minions here. This past November, um, Russia had a resolution passed in the UN General Assembly denouncing the glorification of Nazism. Now, I'll grant you there was a bit of a propaganda behind that, but there were only two countries which voted against it. The United States and Kiev regime controlled Ukraine. Countries as diverse as Iran and Israel voted for it. And when the U.S. government says, well, we don't like Nazism, but uh, we believe in the idea of, uh, you know, not persecuting opposing views. Well, let's look at their stance towards Julian Assange or towards Americans like myself who have been denied earning extra money writing articles for a Russian-based venue, which there's been no conclusive proof put forward that this uh, venue is doing anything especially uh, sinister other than the Biden administration doesn't uh, like their views. Um, uh, how, at this point, we keep hearing war is imminent, war is imminent, President Biden sort of stoking the flames there, or maybe being cautious, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, by saying American personnel um, should leave, at least some Americans should leave, not the military personnel, as you mentioned. At this point, how likely do you think it is that we'll see a war take place by the end of this month? Uh, I don't think it's likely, and that's where I have some uh, disagreement with Douglas McGregor, who's on record believing that by the end of the month they're going to take over territory east of the Dnieper River. I mean, Ukraine historically is an interesting uh, geographical mix. East of the Dnieper River, that area of Ukraine has had a longer period of togetherness with Russia. Subsequently, it's the most pro-Russian part. Now, central Ukraine, on the other hand, hasn't had as long a period, and that includes the capital of Kiev, but much longer than the part that was ruled by the Habsburgs in the West. So this is why you roughly see in western Ukraine very much against Russia, central Ukraine not as much, and eastern Ukraine sympathetic to Russia. Very um, yeah, please. Uh, yeah, but like I said, no, the only way I could see Russia going into Ukraine is if the Kiev regime is foolhardy enough to launch an attack on Donbass. And I would be inclined to believe they wouldn't want to do it because not only would they lose, but the Biden administration and other Western nations said they would not get actively involved in that fight. And in that fight, the Kiev regime is likely to lose additional territory because right outside the rebel territory are populations that seem to be, if anything, more sympathetic towards Donbass rebels than the Kiev regime. So I really I don't think this is going to happen. Instead, we're going to see a long drawn out process. Macron has been able to apparently get the ball rolling in terms of having the two sides, Kiev and Donbass, sit down for the U.N. approved Minsk protocol calling for 
Donbass to have greater autonomy. But that's going to cause a lot of uh, problems because Kiev is going to go into it with the attitude, we're going to try to give them less autonomy as possible, whereas Donbass is going to take the opposite approach. But then there's a bigger uh, picture, perhaps, and that has to do with the positioning of Russian troops on Russian territory in European Russia. And this relates to Russia going back to the 1990s, consistently wanting to see a new security arrangement on the European continent. What would that new security arrangement look like? Okay, well, um, they don't like the idea of further NATO expansion. There were accords signed with the OSCE member nations, 57 nations, including all the former Soviet republics, Europe, all of NATO, which includes Canada and the United States. And according to these declarations that were signed in Astana and in Istanbul, what it says is that an expanded military alliance cannot be at the threat of another nation. Now, there are people out there who say, okay, that's true, but Russia's wrong in believing that NATO is a threat to Russia. But for Russia, NATO clearly is an existential threat, and this is something that many folks in the West don't understand, and I think it's worth to uh, get into. When you go back to when the Soviet Union broke up, Russia openly inquired about NATO membership, and this was met with astonished amusement. But a short time later, when Poland and some others sought NATO membership, that was taken seriously, but it also included some inaccurate uh, anti-Russian propaganda. And uh, NATO, in okaying this expansion, did not do anything to ease Russia's concerns about this negatively inaccurate propaganda. I'm referring uh, specifically, but not just exclusively to him, the late William Sapphire had a regular column in the New York Times where he essentially, in numerous occasions, said, look, NATO's been created to keep Russia down, well, actually the Soviet Union. Russia is an inherent threat according to Sapphire. Russia lost the Cold War. Russia doesn't like it. Too bad. And yes, Russia can't be in NATO because it's an inherent threat. Now, nobody in NATO slammed Sapphire saying, well, this is lousy history. Germany fought two wars against the West. Mm. Russia was allied with the West. The West itself has been at odds. When you look at the Napoleonic era, Napoleon the West, well, guess what? Austria, Britain, and Russia got together to defeat him. And then when we talk about, you know, history, the Soviet period is relatively short. You know, Britain fought two wars against this country and sympathized with the uh, Confederacy. So this idea that Russia is a threat is wrong. And back then, there was a good deal of pro-Western uh, sentiment in Russia, and that pro-Western sentiment turned sour the way this was being yeah. handled. And then in the late 1990s, well, in the 1990s, as Yugoslavia was breaking up, there was considerable bias against Serbs, and I detected that part of that bias stemmed from people in the foreign policy establishment looking at the Serbs as miniature Russians without nukes. You know, the Serbs have that funny Cyrillic alphabet and upside-down <laughs> Russian flag. They're Orthodox Christian Slavs, and they're sympathetic to Russia. So I think that gave a, 
extra zen to hit it to the uh, Serbs and bomb them. In the meantime, in Russia, they saw the bias of bombing the Serbs because it was, you know, a complex war. There was good and bad to be said on all the sides, but the Serbs were made the heavies. Russia saw this situation Michael, correctly. I, I got to run. I'm sure. sorry, we're out of time. I definitely appreciate you coming on. I'll look forward to our next conversation. Okay, Frank. Take Thank care. you. Uh, Michael Averko, uh, he is a uh, person that writes and studies issues related to foreign policy all over the place. And the lack of uh, equal time on issues of Russia that you see in the media, he's our go-to source. He's our version of equal time. This is The Other Side of Midnight. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's one 800 WABC, this is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Town, Steve Miller Band. If that uh, Oregon gubernatorial candidate that I was telling you about earlier gets elected, they're actually going to make this the state anthem of Oregon. Uh, so that'll be interesting to see what happens. Still to come, uh, we have the $1,000 Minute and a whole lot more. And, oh, by the way, it's a big holiday today. You know what today is? It's National Pizza Day. Now, we're not having pizza here because we're celebrating National Pizza Day on Friday. But if you're looking for a, a food that jives with today's theme. Maybe try pizza. All right. Uh, in the meantime, 800-848-9222. Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it. Let's make some romance. You know the night is falling and the music's calling and we got to get down to swing down. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Now, my view of race, it changes from time to time. Now, when I say my view of race changes, I don't mean thinking I am uh, sometimes identifying as a white person, sometimes as a black person, sometimes as a as an Alsatian person, sometimes as an Asian person. No, I don't mean to say that at all. What I mean to say is a lot of times my view of discussing race is that we're better off just not doing it, right? Because I so often think, and I think Morgan Freeman has said the same thing, that if you really want to end racism in this country, stop discussing race. And that has been a lot of what I've tried to do, 
right, in life. I don't view groups as groups. I don't I just view people I'm almost colorblind, not literally, but in the sense of how I view race. Uh when it comes to football coaches or applicants for any other job or candidates that I want to vote for, I don't make decisions on anything based on race. Now, the, so I, I, for a while, was considering myself the post-racial talk show host because I'm not interested in, um, you know, being uh, in any racial issue, right? Because I think this obsession that this country has with race actually serves to exacerbate rather than heal racial tensions. Now, that being said, I have been waffling on this issue because I recognize that maybe that's something that um, maybe we're better off discussing race in an adult way, in a mature way, in a way that uh, doesn't devolve into name-calling and protests. And maybe if you surround yourself with people of different races and different backgrounds— different socioeconomic backgrounds as well, that can actually serve to broaden your perspective and give you uh, a greater worldview than you otherwise would have. So that's sort of my own, I'm, I'm letting you into, I'm giving you a window into my own brain, which is a frightening place. It's not a, the kind of place that you'd ever want to get lost. So when President Biden announced that he was uh, going to pick a black woman on the for the Supreme Court. I um I had varying views. At first, I didn't like it, and I still don't like it. I, I think you should pick the best qualified person that you could find, based on, you know, an objective criteria. But the bottom line is, there are probably thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of people that could do just as good of a job on the Supreme Court as anybody else. And there's probably thousands of people that if you want to, if Biden's looking for someone that has a left of center view of judicial politics, there are thousands of people that fit that bill as well. But you also think about the other, on the other hand, that by nominating a black woman, maybe this sends a powerful message to black female youth of tomorrow that, hey, the Supreme Court is not just a bunch of old white guys and gals. I can be on the Supreme Court. There's somebody that looks like me that's on there. Maybe it's a positive example. And maybe when the Supreme Court is discussing issues like affirmative action or race-based quotas or issues that uh, uniquely affect the black community, Maybe they're well-served by having a black female on there. Uh, That's a debate we can have, right? And it's a debate we have had on this show. I get it. I'm all for having that debate. If you want to make the case as to why we should have a black woman on the Supreme Court, fine. You want to make the case as to why Biden or any president shouldn't nominate a black woman or any specific type of race or gender, fine. However, what we are seeing in academia right now is absolutely horrific. 
Ilya Shapiro. I believe that's the proper pronunciation of your his first name. I think I've interviewed him before, and I think I called him Ilya. But uh, if I'm incorrect, then I apologize to him. But trust me, the mispronouncing of his first name by me is the least of his problems. Ilya Shapiro is a constitutional law expert and a prominent libertarian. Now, when I say he's an expert, he has forgotten more about the Constitution than I would ever learn in five lifetimes. And uh, he is a very bright guy, also happens to be a um, somebody that was hired by Georgetown University as a senior lecturer and the executive director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution, which is part of the law school there. He's a constitutional expert at the Cato Institute. And he had said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago that President Biden would nominate not the objectively best pick, but a lesser black woman to be the next Supreme Court justice. That's what he said. Um, so now Georgetown University's law school has placed... Ilya Shapiro on leave because of his tweets. Now, so on January 26th, Shapiro suggested that Biden should nominate Sri Srinivasan, the Indian-born chief judge on the Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, to succeed Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court. Quote, objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid progressive and very smart, even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian, parenthesis, Indian American, but alas, doesn't fit into latest intersectionality hierarchy, so will get lesser black woman. Thank heaven for small favors? Question mark. Some had called for the law school which is among the most prestigious in the entire country um, and sits right near the Supreme Court, within a mile of the Supreme Court, to rescind their decision to hire Shapiro. Shapiro has been weighing in on Biden's pledge to nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. In an email to the law school, um, its dean said on Monday that the university would investigate whether Shapiro had violated any of the school's policies on professional conduct, non-discrimination, and anti-harassment. Over the last several days, I have heard the pain and outrage of so many at Georgetown Law, and particularly from our black female students, staff, and alumni. That's the word from the dean. Ilya Shapiro's tweets are antithetical to the work that we do here every day to build inclusion, belonging, and respect for diversity. Uh, part, this is what a joke. Pardon me while I choke on my own bile. In an email to the New York Times on Monday, Shapiro expressed regret over his tweets, but he maintained that they were not grounds for disciplinary action by the law school. Quote, I'm optimistic that Georgetown's investigation will be fair, impartial, and professional. Good luck with that. And I'm confident that it will reach the only reasonable conclusion. 
My tweet was inartful and undermined my anti-discrimination message, which is why I apologized. It was not, however, a violation of any university rule or policy and indeed is protected by Georgetown policies on free expression. In a subsequent tweet that Mr. Shapiro also deleted, he said that if Mr. Biden limited his search to black female jurists, his nominee will always have an asterisk attached. Fitting that the court takes up affirmative action next term, he added. The Black Law Students Association at Georgetown condemned his comments, which it said were racist. The group called for the university to rescind its employment offer in a petition that's been signed by over a thousand people. Well, now, what do you think? What's going to happen? They have placed him on leave. 800-848-WABC. I would bet you dollars to donuts that they don't end up hiring him. I would bet you dollars to donuts that he doesn't spend a day as the head of this constitutional law center that he was slated to be the head of. I would bet you he doesn't spend a minute as the guest lecturer that he was hired to be. Now, I think that is such a shame because just as there's an argument to be made that there's a benefit to Supreme Courts, to faculties, to workplaces by having people of different races there, there is a benefit to universities, especially prestigious law schools like Georgetown. There's a benefit to having people of different ideological persuasions there. And different politics there. When I uh, try to have parties or even just informal get-togethers, I go out of my way to try to assemble a diverse group. When I say diverse, I don't mean black, white, Asians, Hispanic. I mean young, old, gay, straight. Um, I mean conservative, liberal, non-political. Because people need to be exposed to different ideas. And Georgetown, by holding off on having Ilya Shapiro teach their students, they are depriving their students of a valuable perspective. And these kids in law school are going to be worse off for it. And I believe they'll be less well-rounded as attorneys. And beyond that, and if you want to weigh in on this, I'd love to hear from you, 800-848-WABC. That's 800 848-9222. Beyond that, what Georgetown is doing is it flies in the face of free speech. Do we really want an environment where professors, students, administrators are terrified to voice their opinion? I don't want that environment. I want people to be free to express their opinion. I want those opinions debated. I want those opinions challenged. I want those opinions defended by the people expressing them, challenged by those who disagree with them. I don't want people shouted down, intimidated, and bullied for fear of losing their job because they express them. Why do colleges so often seem to have a problem with free speech. 
You tell me. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. From what I can see, Georgetown University's law school violated their own free speech policy last week when it placed Ilya Shapiro on leave over a tweet that offended some students. You know, I'm pretty familiar with the Bill of Rights. You got a right to freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom to uh, uh, freedom of association. Unless the Bill of Rights has been amended, you have no right not to be offended. There is no right to not be offended. So why, because some students were offended by Ilya Shapiro's tweet, again, which he deleted and apologized for, why does their being offended give them a veto power over the hiring decisions of the university? It shouldn't. It absolutely shouldn't. Why do universities make commitments to freedom of speech, then fail to honor them? This, um, and it it just, if we're going to have affirmative action, let's have affirmative action for different ideologies and different political persuasions as well. That's my two cents. You're welcome to comment as you see fit. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Georgetown's policy states that speech may not be suppressed because the ideas put forth are thought by some or even by most members of the university community to be offensive, unwise, immoral, or ill-conceived. I want to repeat that. This is George Watt, Georgetown's policy on free speech. Speech may not be suppressed because the ideas put forth are thought by some or even by most members of the university community to be offensive, unwise, immoral, or ill-conceived. Isn't that what's being done here? Isn't free speech being expressed, excuse me, suppressed precisely on those grounds? I I mean, to me, where are the civil libertarians on this? Where are the uh, people that are aligned with the ACLU? Because they should be yelling the loudest, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello. Yes, hi. First of all, again, fantastic show. You Thank keep you. me up all night, and then I sleep the next day. Excellent. I can't afford to do. Excellent. Okay. All right. I want to say two quick things. One, of course, the right thing would be to um, let people speak what they want to speak. Otherwise, there's no free speech, and you don't really know what they're thinking because they have to toe the line and say, what they're expected to say. That's like ridiculous. That's number one. So I agree with you fully there. And secondly, I believe what Biden should have done, I mean, if he would have done the smart thing, which is something he never does, in my opinion, would be to say he's going to pick the best jurist and then end up picking a black woman. That would really make uh, black girls, women, and so on, feel that they can rise to the top. In a way, he's degrading them by saying, I'm going to pick a black woman, not the best, the best, person for the job, not the brightest bulb in the house, so to speak. But that's what I'm going to pick. So it sort of degrades them in a way. 
my opinion. Charles, I completely agree with you. Uh, I, he didn't have to declare to the world that he's picking a black woman. He could have he could have taken exactly the tact that you would that you that you suggested. But what he did was, and thanks for the call, Charles. Great great points, Bo. What Biden did was he played to the the cheap seats in the election. He wanted as high a black turnout as possible and as high an, a Trump hating female turnout as possible. So he threw out this 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 prize of a Supreme Court seat during the campaign to gin up the black vote and the black female vote specifically, uh, because obviously Biden has had some problems on racial issues over the years. We don't need to go through them all now. But he was trying to obviate those problems by making sure they knew he was going to appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. And now this is just a function of living up to a campaign pledge. Now, other politicians have done this before. Um, Ronald Reagan, for instance, he had uh, implied that um, he didn't say it as overtly as Biden said it, but Ronald Reagan had uh, implied that he would appoint an Italian Supreme Court justice because he recognized the importance of the Italians as a voting bloc. Richard Nixon had, uh, I believe he did more than imply, I believe he stated overtly that he would appoint a Southerner to the court. And he tried repeatedly. The Senate didn't didn't exactly see it his way. But that's because he wanted the votes uh, that were part of the Southern coalition. Now, whether Biden was right or wrong, we can discuss Right. We do discuss regularly. But what's being done now is a suppression of discussion. And this guy may lose his job. And more important, from my perspective, these students may lose somebody that would challenge their worldview because he said something inartful on Twitter. And I don't like that. But, again, you're welcome to disagree as you see fit. 800-848-WABC, 800-848-9222. See, university administrators, they don't get a reward for upholding their principles, which is what uh, having Ilya Shapiro go forward with this job would have been. It would have been upholding the principles of Georgetown. Instead, they get every incentive in the world to quell on-campus outrage. They don't want protests outside of their office, especially not by minority students. Uh, they get they, they have incentives to quell bad press as quickly as possible. That's not good for raising money and maintaining on-campus harmony. And if they're able to do those things, avoid bad press, avoid on-campus outrage, they'll be praised. But there's no punishment for failing to uphold their own university's commitment to free speech. And there ought to be. There ought to be, as far as I'm concerned. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Twitter, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And on Facebook, at facebook.com slash Fan. And uh, you can also email me, even if you listen to the show on the podcast, at frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Speaking of the podcast, you can do me two favors if you're a fan of this show. One is you can subscribe to the podcast. Just search The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano 
wherever podcasts are available. Hit the subscribe button, and then this show will be downloaded to your phone each and every day. And then if you have iTunes or really just about any podcast platform, if you can leave us a nice review, usually you can rate the podcasts from one to five stars. Give us a five-star review and uh, also a uh, a nice comment about why people should listen. What that will do, that'll help our our metrics, and that will help actually more people subscribe to the podcast. So if you're someone that usually listens to the show live and you don't need, need the podcast, subscribe to the podcast anyway. That will help people find it, and uh, that will help people, that will help our, our ratings tremendously. So uh, you can be a mensch if you want to, if you want to do that. Um, and, uh, and we also have a Facebook group where there's a lot of action all the time. Uh, you could just search it Morano radio fans and haters. That's M O R A N O radio fans and haters. Uh, Greg Boone is on there right now talking about the Biden situation. Gino Batali on there talking about the guest that we had on in support of governor Cuomo, Jeff Schilling on there talking about star Trek and uh, a, a lot of other conversations that are going on there right now. Some positive, some negative, hopefully all related at least somehow to the show. Uh, so if you want to participate in those conversations, go to Morano Radio Fans and Haters. By the way, this Sunday, as I mentioned yesterday, is uh, going to be the Super Bowl. We're having a little Super Bowl party. I hope it's a little party. I hope it's not big because primarily we don't really have seating. For that many people, we have maybe comfortable seating for eight people. So if it gets to the point of maybe a dozen or more folks, then I don't know how everyone's going to see the television set. We're going to have to figure something else out. I've been to other Super Bowl parties before, and a lot of times they have televisions in different rooms, and that sort of serves to avoid the bottleneck in one room. And uh, that's not really an option for us. We have we have two television sets. We have one in our bedroom, and then we have one in the living room, family room area. And obviously, I'm not going to have these Super Bowl party goers in our bedroom. So I don't know how to get the crowd to spread out a little bit. We have a bar room. If there was a way that we could get a television set installed in there for Sunday, maybe that would get people to spread out a little bit more rather than all congregate in one area. And um, I don't know, maybe we'll borrow some folding chairs to handle the seating issue. But uh, I can already tell that, that there's going to be more people showing up to this than uh, than my wife would prefer. But uh, we'll see where that goes. It's, uh, it, uh, you know, it is what it is. We'll have some good food. We ordered sandwiches. And uh, we'll get, uh, I'm sure, a pizza pie as well. It, today is, as I mentioned, National Pizza Day. I'm embarrassed to admit that I did not know that until Molly brought it to our attention. We do not have pizza here today uh, because we have pizza here every Friday. So uh, I, we can't overdo it with the pizza. We can't, we can, you know, we can't have pizza two days in one week. But what was interesting to me is that there was some Google search data which showed the best-reviewed and most searched pizzerias both nationally and locally. And, um, you know, I'm always a little um, reluctant to go along with whatever the Google trends are because that doesn't necessarily indicate quality. But, um, I don't know, they say... Carnegie Pizza in Times Square was the most searched pizzeria, both locally and nationally. 
and seven of the top ten most searched pizzerias are based in the New York City metro area, including local chains like Bleecker Street Pizza at number eight. Now, we've ordered Carnegie Pizza here, and I suspect that a lot of that Googling is more a reflection of the fact that this is in a crowded area, Times Square, than the fact that, you know, that it's a pizza quality issue, personally. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-WABC. Seven open lines if you want to jump on board. John is in Brooklyn. Hello, John. Hi, Frank. Um, my perspective on this is that um, discrimination, you, you you already have, you have about 11 to 12 percent or so of blacks in this country. That's about one ninth of the country. And here you have a court with nine people and you have one black on it. So you already have one ninth of the court for black uh, with, black, with black person. Um, I don't think there should be more than one ninth represented so that the others uh, get equal representation and we can stay unified with with equality. Well, so that by that logic, and, and the second and second point, second point, well, that, that's just their, this is their logic. And the second point is women. I don't believe women should be about uh, the laws. I think women should be about their children. And we already have a number of women on the court, and I think it's too many because children will be neglected if we continue allowing women out of the homes to do things other than mind their children. Their children are the ones that are in the jails. Their children are the ones that are taking drugs. Their children are the ones that are committing crimes and stealing and so forth. So well, they should be about their children because many of them don't, don't have – many of the children don't have their father, and the women don't even know who their father right, is. Right, but, but John, John um, uh, so again, that's I, my I, perspective, period. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to provide a, a forum to express it, unlike the folks at Georgetown, which I had hoped – you would speak a little bit more to the issue of uh, academ- uh, you know, uh, academia suppressing free speech. But let's follow your logical train of thought. So you think women should be about their children because their children are the ones taking drugs and going to prison. But aren't, aren't those children... Much more. Right. Well, aren't those children also the children of fathers as well as mothers? Their fathers don't seem to uh, seem to care. They're not even there in well, many cases. Well, maybe that's and in many because, cases the well, women, I, the women. But John, maybe that's because so many of them are on the Supreme Court. Maybe if there were fewer men on the Supreme Court, by by your logic, maybe that would encourage fewer men to get involved in the legal profession and be at home taking care of their children. Well, maybe's and maybe's and maybe's, but in many cases, you don't even know who the father is. So you do know who the mother is, and the mother is the one that's primarily responsible for the children. Basically, it's always been the father goes out and does whatever he can to bring the best that he can for his children. Yeah, I, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It, it's, it seems to me that you know you have a parent in the mother, but in so many cases throughout history, the 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 the, the mother doesn't have the father either from a loss um, and uh, it could be from so many reasons. Maybe she doesn't even know who the father is. Yeah, uh, I, I, I these think things happen in war. They happen in so many instances. Yeah, so. I, I think that's pretty rare to be honest, John. And I know we covered this a couple of weeks ago, but and we're now veering far off the topic. But I disagree with you completely. 
on both the Supreme Court and the family issue. One, I don't think that we should be looking to have I, – I don't even understand, to be honest, exactly what you're saying. And I, I tried to put in a lot of effort in comprehending what you were saying. But I don't think we should have fewer women on the court just so that we have – it sounds like you're saying we should have fewer women in the laws is what you said. And I, I'll assume you meant in the workplace and in professions like being an attorney or being a judge or being a Supreme Court justice. I, I don't think that would lead to all of a sudden better mothers. I, I don't. So I, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Uh, and I think the perspective of the Supreme Court is broadened by having women on the Supreme Court. Secondly, you know, I, I think you're you're basically letting a lot of men off the hook by by saying, well, we need to have women at home taking care of their children. Well, w- what if there's a situation where the man uh, or the father wants to be home taking care of his children? I'm, who are we to say a man shouldn't do that? Uh, I mean, I think that's a very admirable thing for any parent to do, to put aside your own personal career ambitions to take care of a child. Unfortunately, the nature of things today is a lot of times you can't afford to do that, to have to do without two full-time income. So I disagree, and you really didn't speak to my point at all on um, what Georgetown is doing to Ilya Shapiro. So uh, that's neither here nor there, I suppose. Hey, uh, we are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan, uh, Facebook.com slash M-O-R-A-N-O-Fan. On Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's uh, Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. If you want to continue this conversation. Meantime, uh, we are going to give one lucky, lucky person an opportunity to win $1,000. If you are the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. Now, by the way, we're still having this phone issue where we have to call you. So if you call us and you're the seventh caller, we're going to have to call you back. So be prepared to give us your number. But if you're the seventh caller to 800-848-9222, you'll get to play the $1,000 Minute and try to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can do that, you will be $1,000 richer. You can go ahead and call right now, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Uh, let's meet today's contestant, Abraham, in Rockland County. Hello, Abraham. Good morning. How are you? I'm well, uh, Abraham. Uh, have you heard this segment before? Uh, I think I heard part of it okay. once. All right. So let me give you the Reader's Digest version of the rules. So you're going to have to answer 10 questions in 60 seconds. The timer is going to start after I ask you the first question. Now, if you get a question correct, just so that we can get through these questions, I'm going to move right on quickly to the next question. If you get a question incorrect, you're going to hear an incorrect buzzer, and that's an indication that you uh, you have lost. Uh, the, these are pretty easy questions, so don't overthink them. Listen, think for a second, and answer. Don't get flustered. Don't get nervous. If a question sounds easy, it is. It's not a trick question. You ready to go? Okay. All right, Abraham. How many months 
are in a year? Twelve. What religion prescribes a kosher diet? Jewish religion. In the Bible, who defeated Goliath? David. Who is the current host of The Tonight Show? Uh, on Stuart. Uh, what's the name? Uh, uh, name again. Oh, what's it? Escapes me. <laughs> All right. You want to take a guess? Take a guess. Um... That British sounding guy, his name. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Abraham. It's uh, actually Jimmy Fallon is the uh, current host of the Tonight Show. He's been doing it uh, about seven, eight years now. Thank you, though, for playing Abraham. Uh, we'll take Abraham's information, please, Ryan, and we'll send him a a consolation prize, maybe a WABC cap or a the other side of midnight cap if he wants one. We have a lot of cool merchandise over at the WABC Radio Store. You want to peruse it, go over to WABCRadioStore.com. You can type in my last name. It'll bring you a whole bunch of stuff that uh, is emblazoned with our logo. I got uh, the new travel mug that we're offering yesterday, which is pretty cool. And if you use my discount code, Frank15, then you'll save 15% off at checkout. So my mother ordered a couple of the other side of midnight shirts, and you can too. And... You, if you see my someone wearing them, you'll know it's probably my mother. WABCRadioStore.com. That's uh, WABC Radio Caller. Uh, excuse me. WABCRadioStore.com. Search the other side of midnight. Search Morano. And then you can uh, be sure to save 15% by using the discount code FRANK15. So, uh... By the way, the WABC Early News with Jeff Valentine coming up at 5 and the Bernie and Sid show coming up at uh, at 6. And they have an action-packed show as they do each and every Wednesday. Former Congressman Peter King is going to be on the show. And uh, so is former Senator from uh, Minnesota, Norm Coleman. Now, why is Norm Coleman on the show? He's an interesting guy. I uh, I have heard him not only on their show but on John Katzmatidi's Sunday show. Norm Coleman is actually from Brooklyn originally. And Norm Coleman happens to be the cousin of Sid Rosenberg. That's right. Sid Rosenberg's cousin is Norm Coleman. Now, I know Norm Coleman, who did some interesting things as the mayor of St. Paul and some interesting things in the U.S. Senate. And I enjoyed his commentary right around the time of the George Floyd incident. I thought he gave a very uh, unique perspective. But I know Norm Coleman best as having been defeated by Jesse Ventura back in 1998 when Jesse Ventura was elected governor of Minnesota. Norm Coleman was the Republican and Skip Humphrey was the Democrat. But there's one thing I've been wondering. You know, Bernie has been I don't I don't think I'm revealing anything here. I think they're very open about this. Bernie has been doing the Bernie and Sid show from home. Uh, because he's undergoing treatment for prostate cancer, and I guess he doesn't want to schlep back and forth into the radio station until, you know, this round of chemotherapy that he's on is concluded. And I think that's a wise decision. But in the the morning show is very territorial about their newspapers, okay? They get a couple of copies in the New York Post, They get one copy of the Daily News, and they get one copy of the Wall Street Journal. 
Now, I made the mistake one time of taking the Wall Street Journal that was here. Nobody thought not to. I mean, the papers are here. I'm on the radio here. I thought that wrongly that I was entitled to one of these papers. So Bernie very politely comes over to me and he says, hey, you know, Frank, I actually pay for this subscription to the Wall Street Journal myself. And uh, he points to his name and sure enough, says his name. Said, Got it. Won't read it anymore. Done. All yours. And then that was that. I would just take a copy of the New York Post and read the New York Post every day. Then, um, and this is a couple of months ago, but apparently there was an issue with my taking the New York Post. So I was told, don't take the New York Post either. That's solely for the morning show. Now, Bernie is not coming in currently. So whenever I leave here, and I leave here usually around, I don't know, 20 to 6, quarter to 6, 5.30. Whenever I leave here, I see right in front of the elevators, right where they're dropped off, all of these stacks of newspapers, including the New York Post and the Wall Street Journal. And I don't touch them because that was the instruction I was giving them, given. Leave them alone. No New York Post, no Wall Street Journal, no Daily News. Certainly there's only one copy. But I am wondering if now that Bernie is doing the show from home, at least temporarily, maybe maybe it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for me to grab a copy of this New York Post or even the Wall Street Journal. I mean, it's Bernie's Wall Street Journal. They're not airmailing the Wall Street Journal to Bernie on Long Island. I'm thinking maybe I could take these papers. I don't know. If you have a thought, let me know. Uh, 800-848-9222. 800-848-WABC. I I mean, it's not worth raising with management because I don't want to create an issue where none is. Um, But I don't know. Maybe maybe I will just take it and see if anybody says anything. Right? Because from what I can tell now, nobody's taking those papers. So I'm thinking maybe I take it. And then if somebody gives me a hard time or says, don't do that, I just say sorry and stop doing that. I don't know. Uh, Wayne Allen Root, is, uh, who's also been a guest on this show as well, he is uh, going to be on. He's an expert in sports betting, among other things. And they're going to be talking all about uh, sports betting with Wayne Allen Root on the show as well. Uh, speaking of not Roots, but Roofs. My wife brought to my attention, see, whenever there's a house issue brought to my attention in the morning, I know that that's going to do one thing, delay my getting to sleep. And thus was the case yesterday. My wife uh, calls me over. We have a bar room, and it's a room that has a bar, it has a sofa, it has some seating, it has a dartboard. And uh, she says, hey, look, I was examining, she says this to me, I, w- I saw some brown water on the floor. It would look like a brown water stain. It, uh, I thought initially it was a spill, but then I looked up and she points to a light fixture. And it looks like, based on which, where she pointed, that water is leaking in from this light fixture from the roof. And uh, she said, all right, I'm going to have a roofer come give us, you know, an estimate on what it would be like to, to fix the problem. So then a roofer comes, same day, roofer was a nice guy, I uh, 
I didn't catch his name because I got a call from our president, Chad Lopez, when when he was there. So whenever Chad calls, you have to drop whatever you're doing and answer Chad's call because he only calls when there's something important. So I, I dealt with Chad's call. So I, I sort of rushed through my roofer consultation. But the roofer and I examined the outside of the house. And evidently, there was a little piece of siding that came off during the last storm we had. Remember that storm that had the very bad winds? And there's all sorts of water coming in through where that siding is. And uh, the roofer says, uh, well, you know, I could fix what's going on here. It's going to be about $215. Now, my inclination was to just say yes because I say yes to everything. Uh, But my wife said, well, I'm starting to think maybe we need a whole new roof for this section. And he says, well, I can't give you an estimate on that today. I have to come back and review the situation. So we'll see where where we are. As of now, we did replace that siding that had fallen off the house. So hopefully that at least stops the bleeding, uh, stops the hemorrhaging from all the water coming in through the wall. But is that the cause of the water coming in through the light as well? I don't know. So we'll wait and get this estimate for that portion of the roof. We'll see what happens. I will keep you posted, believe me. And um, one quick update to to a story that we had been, that I had brought to your attention. And I consider this to be very good news. You might remember that I told you how the IRS was going to be using some facial recognition identity verification software. Well... The news came out yesterday that the IRS is ending the use of facial recognition for identity verification after a bipartisan backlash, including from a lot of you who were just seeing stars over this. Uh, The agency will transition away from using this service from ID.me. I think this is a a victory for the good guys. Now, I recognize that uh, there's a lot of benefits to facial recognition, but I saw what the IRS was doing here as potentially very dangerous, and I am glad that that they have dropped plans to do this. They were actually already doing it, so uh, I am glad that they are going to stop. And uh, I suspect that this is an idea that you're going to see rear its head in uh, similar circumstances for government agencies in various states around the country. But we'll see. Hopefully they'll stand up and take notice that the American people were not at all happy with this proposal. And hopefully this will not be something that becomes ubiquitous when you want to access government services in different states around the country. We spoke to a lot of New Jersey callers. They say they have to do this for unemployment. So, all right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far. That's 800-848-WABC. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll do 15 seconds of fame as well, and uh, we'll uh, invite your emails. And, and, you know, you can email me, frank.moreno at... WABCradio.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. WABC. Start your morning with Frank Morano on 77 WABC.
Thank you, Andy B., for this delightful theme song. This is The Other Side of Midnight. A couple of quick programming notes. One, uh, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in exactly two minutes. That's where you get to sound off on any subject for 15 seconds. So um, we're still having some phone difficulties, so we have to call you. You have to call us, and then we have to call you back. So we want to allow Ryan uh, some extra time to do that. So if you want to start queuing up for the 15 seconds of fame, now is the time to do that. 800-848-9222 and uh, 800-848-WABC. So call back now. We'll call you right back after we get your number so that you can be prepared for 15 seconds of fame. John Coffey writes me on Facebook saying, unless you are very good friends with Bernie and Sid, I wouldn't touch those newspapers in a million years or ask permission first, but you already know know this. No, I didn't already know it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have publicly ruminated about it. Uh, First of all, I am good friends with both Bernie and Sid, but a lot of times the people that are so rigid in their newspaper enforcement aren't necessarily the air talents themselves, it's this bureaucracy that surrounds the air talent. I remember the person that apparently flipped out, um, you know, when I was taking a copy of the New York Post, wasn't Bernie or Sid, it was their producer at the time. Now, he's since been elevated, He's he's been promoted, so I don't know that the current production staff would have the same issues with me taking a newspaper, but that's, that's what it is. Also, Tom uh, emails me, uh, about Norm Coleman. You don't remember uh, Norm Coleman as having been beaten by Al Franken by 50 votes and after six months of litigation? Yes, I do. I mean, I talk about what I first think of when I hear Norm Coleman. It's that he ran against Jesse Ventura. Uh, I, I, my intention was not to mention everything that Norm Coleman ever did, every celebrity that Norm Coleman ever lost for, to, and whenever he's on with Sid, Sid always mentions, oh, he lost to Jesse Ventura and Al Franken. I don't think it was necessary for me to mention, but yes, I do remember it. I think a lot of people meant, remember that. I supported uh, Senator Dean Barkley in that uh, particular race. All right. Um, uh, Neil writes, I would not use that light until everything is dry and you could try it out. Water and electricity do not mix. I think we have stopped using that light uh, from what I can tell. Uh, but uh, I don't know. I'm the last to find out anything that's going on. But uh, that's neither that's neither here nor there. We'll see what happens. But, yeah, I, I don't know if the issue – it could be two separate issues that we have. It could be that we have a roof leak and water coming in through the wall because the siding was missing. So it could be both issues because the roofer that, that was consulting with us, he indicated that it was a pretty big distance for the water to travel – um, from the side of the wall to the light itself. And that's why I think maybe we have multiple issues, and that's why Rachel suggested maybe we just need to get the whole roof redone. So we'll see. We'll see where it goes. That's the, those are the perils of buying an older house. Our house is from the, the early 1950s. All right. Uh, without further ado, it is time for... 
The other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Ah, yes, let us begin with Victor in Manhattan. Good morning, Frank. Uh, the Volstead Act of 1919 was the worst social experiment in American history, and we're still reaping the ramifications of this experiment because of organized crime. Thank you. Thank you. Fred is in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, I needed some batteries, so I go over to Radio Shack. I asked the kid, I said, give me some Ds. He comes back with Cs. I asked him to give me some double A's. He comes back with triple A's. I said, you're having a bad day? He goes, no, we're just not on the same wavelength. Boom. Uh, Neil is on Staten Island. Governor Cuomo wasn't forced out of office. He left because he knew he was guilty of some of those offenses. And when the prosecutors didn't prosecute, he decided to be a wise guy and say, oh, I made a mistake. I want to come back. Good riddance to him, Frank. 800-848-9222. Mike is in New Jersey. Frank, you should care that people are having sex with butterflies. Could make their wings sticky. Then they can't fly, and the flowers and crops will suffer. That's a fair point, and I confess it's one that I hadn't considered. 800-848-9222. Bobby is in Brooklyn. We the Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Machine by Richard Blasberg and Twisted Justice at CNN.com. Janine Pierre is a criminal and a fraud. sent an innocent New York State cop to prison. Thank you, Bobby. I'm glad the new phone procedures didn't hinder you at all. Billy is in the Bronx. She's a moron. She's a moron. She's a moron. She's a moron. See, he, that guy, he still had the clicking on his phone there. Charlie is in Hell's Kitchen. Sid Rosenberg is not a moron. He's a very talented broadcaster. The caller who calls up and continues to say, Sid's a moron, Sid's a moron. He's the actual. Thank you, Charlie. Bob is in Queens. Yes, this nonsense about the election being stolen has to stop. You can't keep doing this. I mean, I'm not saying you are, but others in Congress who keep repeating your lie. It's an absolute lie. The election was not stolen. Biden is the president, and it has to stop. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, I've ne- and that, I think we'll end it there because now I'm hearing that clicking on the phone line again. I have never said the election was stolen. And uh, Brian Kilmeade spoke out about this on his radio show on Monday. And uh, we, we had a full guest. Uh, we have a full bank of guests for tomorrow. So we're not going to have Brian Kilmeade on tomorrow. But maybe we'll have him on next week to talk about that. Because his comments sort of admonishing Trump for his obsession with this, they've ignited quite a, a firestorm. So uh, I, I tend to agree with the caller. I think that's a losing issue for Trump. I don't see why... He should keep obsessing about it. But hey, the WABC Early News.